kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Auntie Nanny. Um, tonight, as usual, we're going to start off with the CASA update. Alex, are you about? I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? I can. I can hear you great. Um, welcome to the CASA update for the <clears throat> week of 127-2017. So what's new and exciting this week, Alex? It feels like a lot is new <laughs> and exciting. Okay. I don't know about exciting, but... Um, I'm, I'm actually working on a call to action for Montana as we speak. Okay. You can, can you hear me feverishly typing? I can. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, several things have been, uh, moving along. I can't remember if we mentioned this last week, but, uh, <clears throat> uh, Montana is looking at an indoor vaping ban, uh, adding, redefining smoking to to mean vaping now okay. <clears throat> excuse me and uh that is going to a committee hearing on february 2nd in the senate judiciary committee wow that's wow <laughs> yep montana um and uh currently at the moment since it's you know friday um okay. we, we typically don't like to put out engagements on you know at the end of the week uh, people mm -hmm. don't for don't tend to open their emails right. um but uh, we'll likely get this out in the next couple of days uh okay. maybe might even do it tomorrow i don't know how people feel about opening emails on saturdays and sundays <laughs> but um friday is kind of a bad day to do that sure. um but uh there is actually already something up and um, I will share that. Uh, I need to. I need to dig it out here. Give me just okay. a second. Um, I have started doing something that is not completely organized yet, but I figure, and I'm going to drop this in our private chat here if you want to share it with people. Okay. Um, but uh, it's. Uh, I've started kind of issue pages for people to check, and and this will be. A little bit more refined as we go through the next couple of weeks okay. um, but this is one of them and this is for all of the states that are looking at 
uh, indoor. Actually, it's, it's pretty much amendments to the Indoor Clean Air Act. Okay. Um, and uh, and so if your if your state shows up on that map and is highlighted, uh, enter your information, and it'll take you to. Um, uh, it's actually kind of set up as like a, a voter information page. I, I can't okay. change that, but uh, uh, it'll show you all of your incumbent lawmakers and okay. uh, it gives you their phone numbers. So <laughs> it's really, really easy to look up phone numbers. And um, that's going to kind of be the theme going forward is encouraging people to actually make phone calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly we've done a lot, shown a lot, uh, emails are still an important part of this process, but, um, you know, making phone calls, uh, really has a, a much bigger impact sure. on, on lawmakers opinions about, you know, whether or not a bill you know means anything to anybody. Um, sure so that's kind of my goal this year. I think a lot of others, um, feel the same way as, as to, you know, getting, getting people to be comfortable with picking up the phone. Right. So, um, anyway, that's Montana and, uh, and other States. Uh, okay. the, um, I, I should, uh, also mention since we're talking about indoor clean air laws, um, there are, and as mentioned on that, that site, um, there are two bills in the New Jersey, uh, legislature that uh, will amend the New Jersey's Indoor Clean Air Act mm-hmm. uh, to allow for vaping in vapor shops. Um, I'm sure everybody listening to this show already knows that New Jersey prohibits vaping everywhere indoors, um, mm-hmm. except for your own yeah. private home, yep. um, or I think cigar bars, which are a thing. Um, but right. who wants to vape in a cigar bar? I mean, maybe you do, I don't know, but it's, you know, whatever it is, what it is. Um, So that would be a great uh, and a a much needed amendment to New Jersey's indoor clean air law and, 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 you know, historic because New Jersey was the first state to do it. So um, those bills are are working their way. Uh, Hopefully, hopefully we'll be working their way. You know, the idea is to get them assigned or into a committee hearing, Mm -hmm. um, and I had the opportunity to uh, hang out on the phone um, during a meeting of the New Jersey Vapor, New Jersey Vapors Rights Coalition, um, okay. which is predominantly businesses. It was the Va- New Jersey Vapor Retailers Coalition, um, but they changed their name. Um, but it's uh, predominantly New Jersey businesses. And um, I'm, I feel like I'm going to mess up his name, but we had uh, Representative Berzicelli. Um, from the, oh, I believe it's the third legislative district in New Jersey. It's down near Philadelphia. And uh, it, shockingly, he is a Democrat. Um, he is a small business owner and, or was a small business owner and uh, is, is sympathetic to, uh, you know, what, what New Jersey <clears throat> businesses, vapor businesses are, are going through, not just with, um, you know, the indoor clean air law, but uh, also facing FDA regulation. Um, so he actually drove all the way up to North Jersey and hung out with them and um, listened to input from everybody. And um, it was a good meeting. Um, I'm, I'm 
honored to have been able to participate. Right. Um, so that was that that happened on uh, Wednesday, I believe. Okay. Um, another update um, went to Pennsylvania on Ooh. was that Monday? Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so Pennsylvania was Monday. The New Jersey thing was Tuesday, just to get my date straight. Um, right. So on Monday, uh, the twenty third, we had a. Uh, I was a part of a uh, a second round uh, of a rally in Harrisburg. Um, and once again, urging support for, uh, legislation to be introduced by representative Jeff Wheland and Senator Bartolotta. Um, and, uh, these bills would reduce the Pennsylvania vapor tax from 40% wholesale to five cents per milliliter. Um, yeah, I don't know if I, it was a it was a decent turnout to be honest. Okay. Um, it, it it ended up actually being a little bit more than I when when I got up and spoke. There was about about I don't know, a th- two thirds of the stairs in the rotunda were were filled with people, maybe half, um, which was about half the size, maybe a little less than half the size of the crowd that came out um, back in September, okay. um, and. Uh, you know, which afforded me the opportunity to make a really decent point, which is that, you know, a lot of people aren't here because shop shops are closing. People are not um, necessarily engaged as, as much as they can be because they just don't have access to their, their vapor shops anymore. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the, the lack of people standing here was ultimately, I think, representative of, you know, potentially lives lost because people don't have access to these products. Um, uh, but it was a good turnout, a lot of good energy. And, um, you know, uh, we got some uh, additional lawmakers to, to, to show up and, and actually speak in support of, of the effort. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that, that was good. And it, and it sounds like there may be a couple of people who uh, were not, um, signed on as co-sponsors last year who will be signing on uh, this year, um, which is good. So there's some movement there. Um, and I had an opportunity to walk around with uh, uh, one of the business owners in Pennsylvania and go to a couple of um, meetings with staff and, and one lawmaker and uh, <clears throat> actually had uh, a representative from Berks County tell me that I hadn't really quit smoking. Um yeah which I said, no, you're wrong. Um, he himself, I believe, had quit cold turkey. And uh, so this is sort of one of those that, you know, <laughs> well, it was easy enough for me to quit. Why can't everybody else do it? Um, but uh, so I, I, hopefully he will um, come around and be supportive of reducing the tax. Right. And, it, you know, it's it's super frustrating because this, you know, this issue – for I mean, they they don't really make any there's there's no um, there's no no veiled understanding here between lawmakers and businesses. This this comes down to being a, an issue of finances. This is an issue of revenue for the state, um, right. and 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 it's very difficult to tie in long term savings in you know reducing the 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 disease um, associated with smoking. Um, you know, versus what they, you know, imagine will be huge tax revenues 
um, coming from, you know, imposing these ridiculous taxes on vapor products. So it's, it's, it's always very frustrating to have to have that conversation and actually see people say, you know, well, the state just needs money, you know, and, and you, you can't, I mean, if, if, if I just wish I could record those conversations and show them to the world and, and, and show them to, you know, anti-smoking, anti-vaping activists and say, you know, this has very little to do with public health and you know it. Um, yeah. so, um, but despite all that, uh, Pennsylvania was, it was a good, it was a good trip. Um, and there is an engagement sort of out there. Uh, I sent an email to our Pennsylvania members, uh, while I was in Harrisburg, um, urging them to make phone calls. Um, we are not going to put much more out until we actually get a bill, bill number. Um, there is a, um, co-sponsorship memorandum for, uh, Representative Whelan's bill, um, and uh, until uh, yeah, that we may need to put something out for that. I'm not sure, but uh, in okay. for the time being, uh, there was an alert sent out to people in Pennsylvania. So if you're a Casaw member in Pennsylvania, double check your email. Um, okay. There's a link in there for you to, to take action, make phone calls, send emails, um, all that wonderful stuff. Uh, okay. And and you know, going forward, people mm -hmm. can pretty much count on when, when we have an issue, I'm going to send you your lawmakers phone numbers. Um, and there's going to be a link to share with other people in your state, other people affected by whatever issue to go and look up the phone numbers, just like I, I, I described before. It's very easy. Mm -hmm. sure. um, that that's the idea when we want everybody to be able to pick up the phone and call mm -hmm. uh, this year. <clears throat> and it's especially important because uh you know we we may need to get uh everybody calling their their federal lawmakers either in support of legislation or support of changing some regulations right. um and and you know really you know thousands of people calling their uh US congressmen makes a difference and it, yes, it, it does. really really can affect things for the better yeah, I, I threw up a link into the, the listener chat um, from the New York Times about why you should um, call, not email your legislators for people who are curious. Yeah. Because they've done a lot of studies on that. It's, it really works with grassroots because they count the numbers. And phone calls seem to hold a lot more weight. Yeah, and it's, you know, and this is not to not to dive into, you know, Casas balance sheet or anything, but um, we, we upgraded our advocacy, advocacy platform this year mm -hmm. to a system that, um, first of all, has an emphasis on making phone calls. Um, we, we have patch through calling capability this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's expensive and I'm saving the credits for when it's absolutely necessary, right. but, um, it is a feature that we're, we intend to take full advantage of. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're moving along here and we, you know, um, you know, this has been a very long learning process for everyone, right. but, uh, you know, the, the goal here is to really use the tools that have the most impact mm -hmm. and, um, and, and connect as many people as we can with their, with their lawmakers. So, um, mm -hmm. as we go through the season, uh, people can look forward to that. Uh, and the other thing mm -hmm. is that, uh, um, you know, we're going to be able to send people engagements on their phone. 
which is nice. Um, nice. So we're, you know, we're doing everything that we can, um, which is really just sort of investing a lot of time and money, but um, everything that we can to remove the barriers between, you know, advocates and lawmakers. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, yeah, again, figured I'd put that out there. Looking forward to next week. Um, I don't know what it is about February 2nd, but it seems to be a pretty popular day for committee hearings. Um, as I mentioned, uh, there's the committee in the Senate Judiciary, I'm sorry, a hearing in the Senate committee, Senate Judiciary Committee in Montana. Mm-hmm. And that's for the indoor uh, clean air law. Um, that alert will be going out. That's for 9 a.m., uh, I believe room 303 uh, details will be going out to people in Montana. Um, there is also tentatively a hearing scheduled in Maryland. Maryland is all of a sudden going to be a really busy state this year. Um, there are two bills, one in the House, one in the Senate, that would enact a uh, licensing scheme um, on manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. Uh, and at, at this time, the language includes an online sales ban, um, which is, that's really where we get involved. Um, but, uh, people have been working on this issue. There is, uh, the MVA, Maryland Vaping Association, Maryland Vapors Association. Um, and, uh, our own Ron Ward, Ward, of course, lives in Baltimore, uh, and has been uh, <clears throat> speaking with people. Um, so there, there's there's sort of a, a team of people working on this. Okay. Um, so I say that tentatively the the hearing is scheduled for the second, but uh, that may change. I'm not. We're not sure yet. Uh, that might get pushed back. We'll see how um, how receptive they are to um, changing some of this language. Uh, right. But from what I understand. Um, there's been some, some, some good news, I think, coming out of Maryland um, in, in, in regards to this bill. Um, so that's SB 119, uh, and uh, I forget the House bill number. Um, and I don't have anything open. Oh, uh, House, B, House bill HB 523. Uh, okay. they're, they're the same bill. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, that's something that we're we're on top of, and um, who knows, I might get a trip to Annapolis out of it. Ooh, that um, sounds exciting. Yeah, scenic, scenic Annapolis, Maryland. Um, <laughs> so, um, and Maryland is also uh, looking at uh, an amendment to the indoor clean air law. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is that uh, a tax bill is not likely this year. Anytime we see a licensing bill like what Maryland is looking at now, um, it, it tends to be a precursor for some sort of taxation. Sure. Um, but uh, Maryland's governor is not not interested, so um, it doesn't sound like that's going to go anywhere. I'm not going to say that's a definite. I'm just saying right now doesn't look like it's going to be a big deal. Um, okay. But we'll we'll keep everybody up to date on that. Okay. <sighs> I am, I am almost certain there is more out there. I've just been, I have spent my mornings for the past week going through 
alerts, alleged bill alerts, 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 and uh, sorting them and, and figuring out um, what's going where. So okay. uh, it's been a bit overwhelming. This year, 2017 is like 2015. Um, you know, it's the start of the two year legislative session. So mm-hmm. everything is getting introduced in the next two to three months. Okay. Um, so it, it's been, it, it'll taper off, I guess, as we get closer to spring. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a bit crazy. Um, yeah. the other thing I th- think we, I can't remember if we discussed this or not. There was, uh, the Trump administration put out a freeze on, um, regulations and guidance. Did we talk about that last week? I think a little, but not really. So, and I, and I'm not going to get too in depth on it, but I did just kind of want to put it out there in case people are interested. Um, the, so the memo went around and it, and it, it, basically directed all federal regulatory agencies to um, kind of, I guess, take back or or not publish things that were scheduled to be published in the federal register uh, as of uh, the 23rd. Um, And there are still things that are out there in the wild um, or, well, not really the wild. They're on the federal register. Um, There were things that were published one of them is a proposed rule from the FDA, which would limit the uh, amount of tobacco-specific nitrosamines, NNN, uh, in smokeless tobacco products. And um, there are some problems with this. Um, you know, although you know, one of the, actually, I read one of the comments from all the antis, all of them. Uh, which was saying that, you know, the Swedish tobacco products have um, remarkably lower nitrosamine content than uh, American smokeless products. It, you know, right. demonstrates that it can be done, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's important to note, first of all, that, you know, yes, tobacco-specific nitrosamines are are linked to causing cancer, um, but uh, the, the quantities that, at which people are exposed to them in smokeless tobacco products are already remarkably low compared right. to smoking. And, um, you know, although no product is safe, no product, uh, it, uh, you know, the, the, the chances of developing some sort of oral or esophageal cancer from smokeless tobacco is actually remarkably low. Um, and certainly your risks of developing lung cancer are practically zero. Um, so, I mean, you still have to wake up and breathe the air in whatever city you live in, but using smokeless tobacco, isn't going to make that any worse. Um, so, uh, the rule as it's written would essentially, uh, from what people have sort of casually been talking about, um, remove American smokeless tobacco products from the shelves. Wow. and uh, so the smokeless tobacco industry could be facing uh, a very similar situation to what the vapor industry is facing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that comment period runs until, I believe, April 10th. Right. Um, I, already there's a couple comments up there. The, the one from all of the anti-groups is saying, you know, you don't need a 60-day comment period and all this stuff. It should be clear. Um, but uh uh, it is likely that CASA will be working on our own comment. Uh, oh. And 
uh, I'm really just not sure. Uh, it, maybe it, it's possible that their comment saying you don't need to delay 60 days is uh, maybe that's in response to the memo that was released about uh, federal agency guidelines and rules. Um, I don't know, but uh, it is open on the on the regulations.gov right now. And um, so, yeah, it, it, we'll be looking for some clarification. And actually, if you read the memo, um, that specific rule was not mentioned as something that uh, Health and Human Services should take down. Um, at least I don't think it was. So, um, but yeah, that's that's out there, and um, okay. I figured I'd pass that along. Thank you. <clears throat> but, uh, see, my understanding with that was always that we don't really know what all the other chemicals do in concert that if you removed one it might make something else more harmful that was my understanding of why that was a bad idea to do that but what do i know and uh, people who use american style smokeless tobacco which is very sweet um i don't think they would like swedish style snooze i'm just saying it's a different world that's a different experience there yeah, I mean, I've noticed it. It, it tends to um, the, the delivery is a bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it packs sure. a little bit of a different punch. punch. Um, I have only ever experienced the same sensation from loose snooze, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and maybe the, the like that ridiculous um, uh, Siberia brand. That has like it's like a dry it's a dry snooze and it has okay. like I don't know forty milligrams of nicotine in it or something something ridiculous it's 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 strong yeah. Um, yeah. but uh, it, yeah and I apologize for mentioning brand names here but we don't really get to talk about smokeless tobacco too much no we don't uh, <laughs> um, but that's it's certainly not an endorsement of any product but just sort of describing the differences between American and Swedish style snooze. Yeah, uh, Swedish um, style snooze is very salty because it it's, is. It's it's a food product basically. It's, tobacco is not like a food product here. Yeah, it's the difference between pasteurization versus um, fermentation, which is what uh, uh, American style is, and that you know makes it a little bit more more harsh, I guess. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I see Jeremy is asking about snuff. Um, that stuff is actually pretty kind of dangerous, from what I understand. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you are inhaling something again, and it's you know it gets kind of stuck up in your sinuses, and um, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever used it, but uh, I, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, that just doesn't seem like a good time to me. I think our, our great, 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 great grandparents were very, um, they were manly people, men and women. They were, they were very um, hardy people if they could do that. Yeah, but certainly um, the, the snuff, the dry powdered snuff uh, fits somewhere on Mitch Zeller's continuum of risk. Yeah. Um, probably not as dangerous mm -hmm. as smoking, but certainly not as uh not as low risk as smokeless tobacco yeah. um so yeah i i uh again feel like i'm missing something i you know a, a, another article actually maybe you can to put out there uh okay. i think i actually got this from your update jan um 
was that, uh, and this came from uh, Planet of the Vapes, the UK, UK right. uh, site, that uh, Apple has, um, I'll just read it from there, um, okay. that Apple clarified uh, to Planet of the Vapes that it has chosen to reject new apps and any new updates and upgrades to existing releases that contain any content related to nicotine with no further reasoning as to the nice. thoughts behind their new policy. Um, so I, I know that, you know, when I started going to trade shows, there were a couple guys walking around that were um, creating apps that would allow you to connect with other vapors. Um, there are, I'm sure, shops that were um, using, uh, well, I'm pretty sure, I know that there are kind of digital menus that people are, are mm-hmm. using to, to yeah. um, you know, a very slick way to present their products. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we do, I don't know if we actually do have an app. Um, our, our site is available. It, it, it translates well to a mobile device, but uh, uh, it, uh, it's not really its own app. So I don't really know how Apple would uh, treat uh, a CASA app. Um, considering that uh, we advocate for tobacco harm reduction. Um, but uh, yeah, that's an interesting development. I'm sure you'll include that link uh, somewhere else. I will. Um, by the way, I, I should say, I, I, you know, this is kind of, I, I know it's not really necessarily a CASA thing, but um, I, I read, I, I have finally gotten in the habit and the discipline of reading the, the, the nicotine daily. Um, oh, when I get so it's the I try, I try to make it the first thing I look at in the morning. Oh wow! Um, Thank you. And uh, and I encourage everybody to do that. You you may not you may not do the shameless self promotion, but uh, I will certainly I've encouraged people to check that out in other other formats as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean it's 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 kind of a pain to get all the stuff together, but I figure at least if it's all in one place. Um, do you have somewhere you can go and, and see it all at once? Yeah, it's nice. I can go down the list. And I, I especially like it now. For for whatever reason, it seems like things have sort of slowed down a bit. It, it mm-hmm. used to be there was at least like 10 or 12 articles to read. Now yeah. it seems like there's three or four in each section. And yeah. uh, it's a little bit more manageable for my eyes. But um, <laughs> I certainly expect that to pick up at some point. Um, oh, yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, I've, I've gotten a I, I find that to be very useful. So oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I'm, you know, I'm glad somebody finds it useful. I mean, that's, it's kind of why I did it. I mean, I did it. So if we were looking for a story to blog with, it would be there. Or if anybody was looking for a story to blog with, they could just find it. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of news about smoking tobacco, nicotine and vaping, but all of it's kind of put together by like, um, tobacco org which is that's a place that doesn't like us do you know what i mean so i figured <laughs> at, least, at least if i was doing it the same sort of thing at least it would be someone who was either neutral or you know liked us <laughs> that was yeah. kind of my thinking about that so nice well i'm glad you like it alex i appreciate that very much yeah so yeah so do you think this might be it this week, Alex? I think so. I'm crossing my fingers. I'm sure I forgot something. So um, we'll just pick it up next week. Okay. 
Thank you, Alex. Have a good night. And thank you for everything you do for us. All right. Thanks. Me too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. So, um, yeah, I guess I should just... Hi. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Howdy. Okay. So, now for the anti-nanny portion of the show. Uh, with me this evening is the bubbly and vivacious Miss Jeannie Kay. Hi, Miss Jeannie. Jeannie. Hi, Jen. How are you? Fucking peachy. Okay. Um, and Jeremy, how are you this evening? Wonderful. <laughs> he sounds happy. And... Oh, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you why later. Okay. Uh, and the very best producer money can't buy, which is good because after almost four years, I'm still not paying him. Very, how are you this evening, Very. I'm good. Okay. Um, so it, it, I didn't know if we were going to be able to broadcast on here tonight for unknown reasons. But uh, I'm glad we're all together and here. Yay. Yay. Um, so, yeah. Uh, does anybody want to pick a story? Because there's, there's some fun ones, and there's some ones that aren't so much fun. But no, I don't want to have to go first every week. But I rather okay. liked uh, General McChrystal. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> General McChrystal explains what he means by suggesting a rights. Ladies and gentlemen, be... and welcome to Auntie Nanny. Um, Tonight, as usual, we're going to start off. That's not me. What crazy okay. shit is that? I don't know. Okay. Um, General McChrystal explains what he means by suggesting our rights will be curtailed. I wrote a note asking General Stanley McChrystal about the warnings he gave in an interview. And here is that interview that he gave to Prism Magazine. Prism Magazine... Uh, Prism Magazine is sort of uh, an educational publication. Okay. Um, so the writer quoted this, and this is what the general responded with. I'm not consciously seeking to make a lot of news these days. There seems to be plenty being made already. But I'm comfortable providing a few thoughts on the part of Prism interview that you found of interest. On technology's impact on domestic security, I first think about how technology, particularly information technology, has changed and is changing many of our attitudes and expectations of privacy. On the one hand, we desire information and security and can resent things like targeted fundraising or advertising that results from the increasing volume of information about us that is publicly available. But most of us have willingly or unconsciously made our lives dramatically more transparent by embracing the capabilities and convenience of network devices. I think we're at an uncomfortable tipping point where the actual implications of this transparency are increasingly apparent, but backing away from all of that connects us is impractical. From a domestic security standpoint, faced with technology-enabled opponents, we are more rapidly trading significant parts of our privacy and anonymity than most of us freely admit. Confirming our identity to board a commercial aircraft or enter many business buildings is just an obvious step. But because the technology exists and in some cases is used to track cell phone locations, 
Read automobile license plates, record toll book passage, and compile credit card usage by place and time. Our whereabouts and activities, our pattern of life, is easily collected, analyzed, and leveraged. Security systems within organizations can analyze an employee's behavior for everything from their efficiency at serving tables and restaurants to predicting internal theft or compromise of sensitive information. Add to this the proliferation of cameras, from security cameras to individual cell phones, and an extraordinary record of heretofore private or forgotten activities is now permanently available. In many ways, we have, perhaps, unconsciously conducted an impressive and unblinking all-source intelligent collection capability. But to direct it at the new breed of threats, we must also focus it on ourselves. Each of us will have a different view as to where the right balance lies, and what I'd like future reality to be, and what I suspect will be the case, will no doubt be different. But my guess is that in the next decade or more, we'll show a consistent tension between the security provided by the rising collection and the analytical capacity and our desire for some level of privacy. I see it likely for most citizens to gradually accept more and more encroachments to the personal privacy our grandparents and even our parents considered sacred and secure than for us to accept the inconvenience or security risks associated. I'm not convinced to change to the Bill of Rights is ahead. I find it more likely that our interpretation of what rights of privacy mean will evolve. Okay. So, yeah. So he's saying you you voluntarily enter the Panopticon. Fuck that. You do. You use WhatsApp. They can snoop on WhatsApp. You use Facebook Messenger. Every word there is seen, recorded, and given to the government. Um, use your phone for directions. You're watched then. There's even apps that when you walk into a physical store to buy something, will connect with your phone and steal data from that. Um, data's the new currency, I think. That's the basic thing. Um, the minuscule details of our lives are kind of traded away between companies and corporations and governments. And I never realized that was such valuable stuff and it's such little stuff, but it all adds up to create this impressive picture of who you are, what you like, what you dislike, what you might choose to do at some point in the future. And that's sort of troubling no one should really have that sort of picture and it kind of leads to and i think we've talked about this before is it baltimore pd uses the the pre-crime uh software to predict who's going to commit a crime yeah, a lot of police departments do it but a lot of that connect collects you know what data you make available about you on social media to form some sort of picture with some degree of accuracy for you creating a crime. It takes your geographic location, places you've checked in, all that stuff, and just paints this picture of you based on AI algorithms. But they don't really know you. And I don't know, I find this sort of thing reminds me more and more of Minority Report. Well, our, our, you know, our mothers used to tell us actions speak louder than words. So, I mean, it was just a logical progression of the way that the world's evolving, I guess. I guess. Uh, does anybody else have any opinions on this? <laughs> no, not really, because 
I mean, it's it's an understood thing. If I have learned anything from you, Jan, anything, if it's smart, somebody is spying on it. Somebody is finding a way to use it, and you have no say in the matter because you didn't read the 35 <laughs> pages of the terms and conditions when you started the damn thing up the first time. Absolutely true. No, so. Before too long, we're all going to be hooked up to the human sentai pad. <laughs> <laughs> God, I hope not. I, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, that was, that was fine for South Park. I'd rather not do that in real life. Just saying. All I can say is I hope and pray that I'm in the front. <laughs> yeah, I don't really want to be the middle person there. Jeannie, <laughs> um, I'm guessing you've never watched South Park. You would guess correctly. Oh my god, they have such great episodes. Um, it's a freaking adult cartoon. The the Toilet Safety Administration is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> the only thing I know about South Park is they killed Kenny. And the only reason I know that was because my oldest boy had to have this shirt. And and it was, it was that they killed Kenny. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And he's like, oh, me and mom, it's South Park. And I'm like, what? And he goes, oh, it's, it's, it's a really it's a really awesome cartoon. And I'm like, um, but they kill this guy? Oh, he's, oh, yeah, they kill him every episode. It's for grown-ups. And they I'm do. like, what the hell are you watching this shit for? It's great. It's a commentary on everyday life, pretty much. And uh, I love how at the end... One of them is always going, I think we learned something today. That just cracks me up. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, South Park's really good for, you know, human, what was it the human centipad? That was one. Um, the Toilet Safety Administration was another one. One of my favorite ones was the one about Kim Kardashian not being a hobbit. Does anybody know which episode I'm talking about? No. Mm, I don't think I've seen that one. I remember uh, the Snooky. Well, there was one where Kim Kardashian's uh, future husband at the time was uh, portrayed as Aquaman. He was just, he was in love with fish. So, um, and then I guess he moved on dry land and, um, ended up with Kim Kardashian and um, so one of the girls at South Park Elementary was showing how Photoshop makes people look more attractive and everybody wanted Photoshop photos of their girlfriend and she would do it and try to explain to them see this isn't how people really look and she said look if you take Photoshop away Kim Kardashian's basically a hobbit <laughs> yeah. that episode was really funny um, because, you know, her husband would go to South Park Elementary and yell at the kids for saying, you know, she, she's not a hobbit. She she has she sits there and she smokes her pipe at night and she strokes her beard, but and he'd call her, are you sure, bitch, are you sure you're not a hobbit? Really funny. I may have and dropped a meme into the chat. <laughs> it, uh, that's some funny stuff. Oh, God. I, um, yeah. So, I love South Park. I guess that's basically what we take from that. And, okay. 
Can we, can we bitch about chicken? Uh, KFC? Well, yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay, so this isn't happening here yet. I give it time. Uh, KFC's new facial recognition software is troubling for a few reasons. What kind of chicken does your face look like? KFC has just reached finger licking levels freaky. The fast food chain recently debuted a facial recognition technology at a restaurant in Beijing, China, thanks to a partnership with the Chinese search engine Badu. According to a press release from Badu that was obtained by the Huffington Post via email, the artificial intelligence-enabled system provides meal recommendations based on a consumer's gender, age, and mood. A male customer in his early 20s may be recommended a meal, a set meal of crispy chicken hamburger, roasted chicken wings, and Coke for his lunch, while a female customer in her 50s would be suggested to have porridge and soybean milk for breakfast, the release said. After making the meal assessment based on your features, the AI-enabled machine can save the picture of your face to remember your order for future KFC visits. Though it sounds rather creepy, Badu insists this will help cut down on order time. Perhaps the most troubling thing about this kind of technology, aside from fast food giants gathering personal data on your eating habits and the sexist and ageist suggestions, is that eating is an incredibly personal and human experience. Food is all about choice choosing what you want to eat, where you want to eat it, and how much you want to pay for it, and who you will eat it with. Of course, you can override the machine's suggestions from this KFC assessment, but why would you want them in the first place? Okay, Janie. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, I mean, and at least with 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 smart technology, we know it's it's on the news that they're using this shit to just collect data on us. But uh, fucking fast food place, really? Really? Yeah, I, I don't... I don't want I don't oh. them to tell me what fucking food to order either, or to suggest food to me. That's that's like... Um, did you see the thing that that Kirsten posted this week about the, the recommendations that her health insurance is telling her she needs to follow the things she needs to do because they think that her index is too high. No. I, oh, oh yeah. And I'm like, what, what in the fuck is this? So now your insurance company that you're paying outrageous premiums to get your health report and someone who isn't even a physician looks at a bunch of numbers on a page and knows absolutely nothing about you has no interaction with you whatsoever other than reading test results on a piece of paper can dictate how you have to treat your health and your diet and your medication. You're going to force somebody to take medication. What? What is this? This, this, this is absolutely ridiculous that the fast food chain is going to use your biometrics um, and they're they're going to surveil you, and yep. and tell you what you should order for food. This is disturbing on a whole nother kind of level. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Um, I guess just to touch on the Kirsten Kristen story. Um, I am licensed as a pharmacy technician. I will not do that job. Um, 
they made the job way more complicated when everything started to be interconnected to computers. And most of your day in a pharmacy now consists of you type in the prescription, the prescription goes to the insurance company. The insurance company now sends you and the doctor a list of medications that they will pay for. So your doctor is no longer prescribing. Somebody sitting in an office saying that's that costs way too much is now prescribing what drugs you will and will not be allowed to take for your medical conditions, not your doctor. Blows my mind. It blows my mind. So basically all you're doing is just on the go, just, you know, trying to inform them that no, you know, the effects of this medication will kill my patient and they don't really care. Um, this is the point we're actually at with prescribing and medicine and health insurance now, and it really shouldn't be that way. Computer what says happens? no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. What, <laughs> what happens when I go to KFC and after several months or however long the time frame that they need to establish is that I go against their healthier choices or mm -hmm. it logs my consistent choices of less than healthy foods mm -hmm. and they sell that information to insurance companies and then I can no longer get health care because of the food choices that I've made. Yeah. I mean, this is... It was, I'm reading it and I'm going, you know, Huffington Post is treating it like it's this cute thing. It's not. That is a massive privacy violation. At least that's one that I'm safe from. <laughs> I, I just want my chicken sandwich where it's fried chicken instead of bread. <laughs> the double down. Oh my God. I haven't had one of those. In first. The last time I had one, it was so greasy. I couldn't eat it. Mm. Um, but no, they, I, if you're trying to get your body to go into kilosis, there's nothing better than a double down for that. Um, I just don't understand how this is the new normal. When you have a general talking about we're giving away a lot of our privacy and we're going to have to reevaluate what that means, instead of saying, hey, what we could do is pass laws to curtail these idiots from stealing every ounce of information about you and then using it against you, which would be the thing I think you would want to do. Uh, we don't want to do that. It's funny. I'm completely anti-government. And yet I see spots where I think if we had a good government, this is where they would step in, but they don't because it would make keeping track of you harder for them. And then you've got, the restaurants wanting to serve a 50 year old woman porridge and milk skim, I'm sorry, soy milk, because that's what you should be eating at a KFC because I'm sure everything that comes from there is super healthy. Um, it's just ridiculous. It's all poison. It will KFC per, probably. Well, it is for me. Soy. <laughs> no chicken. Chicken. <laughs> Well, it does have a lot of chicken. Oh my god! Yeah, I would, I would die if I was allergic to chicken or pork or beef. I really would. Um, and, you know, if they outlawed the consumption of animal protein, I would die, literally die. No, 
because I've got to tell you, if you're if you're decent with cooking, you can make some really good meatless substitutes yourself. As someone who lives in as someone who lives in Scotland, if they banned the protein of meat consuming products, the English would be very scared because they'd be expecting a Scottish invasion <laughs> any minute. Because cannibalism <laughs> would come back. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> we eat a lot of meat over here. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, you also have a good quality of beef. It's not fed rennet. <clears throat> I mean, it's not fed um, remnants. It's not, um, they're not grinding up scappy infected sheep and feeding them to your cattle anymore. Yeah. Skittles. <laughs> found... We don't give them reject Skittles. <laughs> that was an article that believe... came up a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I put that on my. I was yeah. fucking furious. I was like, "Holy shit!" They give cows sprinkles. They give them skittles, and they give them ice cream if it's not up to par. I'm going really, and you wonder why cancer rates are so goddamn high. You know, well, just... you know, after an entire life of avoiding tofu like the plague, because <laughs> I've always looked down on tofu and people who eat tofu. Um, I actually tried tofu the other day, and after the after the meal that I had that had chunks of tofu in it, mm-hmm. I, I am now convinced that Vienna sausages are chicken, pork, beef flavored tofu because that's exactly the consistency of it. Well, I mean, a lot of the frozen products, um, your chicken nuggets, um, a lot of your extruded meat products, which would be your hot dogs and the like, they have a lot of quite a lot of tofu in them for the sake of the consistency of the product. Yeah, um, yeah, I had the best hot dogs ever, Jan. Ever, ever, ever. Um, Our neighbor that raises beef and and that Paul went over and helped him butcher that gigundous hog. By the way, we did finally get a weight on the gigundous hog. It was a thousand pounds. Wow. A thousand and one pounds actually is, is what they finally came up with but anyway um so the place he takes him to have him butchered they they make the hamburger patties up for him and and all of that well they made hot dogs for him this time um and they were absolutely amazing hot dogs out of that beef and and then the hog that paul helped them butcher um greatest hot dogs i've ever had in my entire life i don't care what anybody says um unless you've had a a real actual hot dog that bullshit at 99 cents in the grocery store is, is just junk. They were really, really good hot dogs. Yeah, they'd have yeah. been proper bockwurst style rather than mechanically recovered meat, which is what most hot dogs are made from, <laughs> the pre-made ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, they're not really tasty. Um, And what I was going to say about tofu, I don't eat a lot of to- I don't eat a lot of meat anymore. Um, mostly because I can't buy a cow share down here. If I could, my life would be a different story, but I can't. So um, I eat a lot of meatless stuff, but I make it myself. I'll make black bean burgers, which I love. I'll make my own garden burgers, which are great, you know. Um, And there are some really good, proper vegetarian meat substitutes out there that they're they're good. They don't have a lot of soy in them. And soy is, by the way, not the world's greatest substance to be eating if you happen to be male. Well, I think we depends, can all agree on that. Depends how much you like moobs. Um, 
But yeah, oh, soy. Yeah, if people don't know, soy's in just about every processed food now. Yep. Bread, rolls, biscuits. It's used as a bulking agent and preservative. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. And everybody was scared of um, gluten. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Everybody was. Everybody was like, oh, no, I can't have gluten. Um, so, Let's, yeah. Di- dietitians are fighting. Yeah, there's been. It's the usual public health did all that stuff about gluten and when you talk to actual dietitians it's not gluten a lot of these people are even allergic to it's it's an amino acid being produced in their gut when they process the gluten and if they had this particular antibiotic treatment that would get rid of it it's basically down to people having shitty diets when they're young and they end up with these intolerances not full allergies because a lot of the people that have a gluten. I'm allergic to gluten. It's like, yeah, no, it's an intolerance, you idiot. It's because well, you weren't people, exposed to it enough when you were younger. Well, some people actually do have real gluten problems. And, and oh, yeah. those people, those products should still be available for those people. But there are other people that just need to see a doctor who has a clue. But the other thing is, does anybody remember the diet advice that came out last week about feeding your children food with peanuts in it as soon as possible? <laughs> yeah. Anybody? Because yeah, I remember it. Yeah. That's yeah, why they say a lot of children system. are. Yeah, a lot of children are intolerant to all this stuff because their parents keep them away from it because they have this nutrition voodoo going on in their heads. You know, they have these nightmares about different kinds of food did, hurting. Did you their see kids. the latest? thing in Europe. Well, it's coming from Europe, but the Food Standards Authority in the UK. No. Toast, roast potatoes, you know. Oh, I did. Golden brown. If you overcook them, they're cancer. Oh, they're they're cancer in a loaf. Funnily enough, the reaction from normal UK (laughs) people was piss off. (laughs) I mean, doesn't everything cause cancer? Everything causes cancer and everything cures cancer. Well, the one, I mean, that got, that's, that's... the one that gets you about this is this is something they've known for like 30 years or something. Mm-hmm. Now they're making it an issue. It's because the EU has brought out a directive and apparently restaurants are now going to have to stay on menus when like roast potatoes are well done and all this kind of stuff. It's insane. Well, so they would rather have you eat a raw potato? No, no, it's or it's got to be cooked, but boiled, but not, but only as far as golden brown. As soon as it passes golden brown, <gasps> dangerous. Yeah. So apparently, apparently they've got um, color charts. You're fucking kidding me. Nope. I mean, I know I saw puddle coat. I saw the puddle coat on on Twitter taking the piss, but I didn't realize there were distributing color charts. I, oh no, I, no, they haven't been distributed yet, but it's part of the EU legislation that got chucked in so it's only a matter of time before food inspectors are going to have to, have to be going around restaurants with colour charts <laughs> looking at the potatoes and, oh, ridiculous you know, this kind of shit is what closes restaurants you mm-hmm. know no shit y'all this is the kind of stuff that makes businesses go under when the regulation gets that insane well the, gonna... the whole egg scandal you must remember that 20 whatever years ago yeah, it means they brought in rolls in the UK. Restaurants couldn't make their own mayonnaise anymore. Oh, I remember that. Which is Which weird, because may, 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 people may not know this. 
mayonnaise is one of those things that doesn't go off unless you really try. Um, <laughs> it's not naturally, un, you know, it, it kills germs. Um, yeah. So, but you you aren't allowed to make your own because you might use eggs that had salmonella and not do it right and give people food poisoning. You're but like, your eggs there don't give people salmonella like hmm. ours do here because the regulations for how they're to be cleaned and treated are completely different. That plus the fact we did a pretty good job of figuring out where the salmonella was in the food chain and getting rid of a lot of it. <laughs> well, I mean, so, what, yeah. what I'm saying is you've got one regulation in place. This states, how you know, how much room the animal is to be given, how much sunlight, all this stuff, right? Yeah. That really does go to the heart of getting rid of the salmonella. Yeah. You know, um, and then for them to just double down on it and say, oh, you could still get it from this. Well, really? Not if you're buying food from somebody who's actually following the ridiculous regulation you passed before. Yeah, any, anyone who's making mayonnaise themselves has, probably has some sort of qualification in food manufacturing. As in, went to catering college. Because it's not that easy to do. <laughs> it's quite complicated making mayonnaise. It's hard to tell. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I think it might be a, a different sort of food um, than what we're used to here. Um, I think a lot of food in the UK is different. I had somebody come in from Staffordshire the other day looking for double cream <laughs> I, I, la I laughed at them I said you're never going to find that here and not, you, we don't. yeah let alone he was probably looking for the extra thick double cream yeah yeah and he's like well do you just have cream I'm like well I have cream but you're not going to like it yeah. and he's looking at me he's going how do you know I'm like because your cream isn't pasteurized oh no our cream Mine is, is pasteurized. but the way, the way they do cream in the UK is really strange they take all the milk out <laughs> They pasteurize the milk, they pasteurize the separated cream, then they mix them back together. And that works, weirdly. Well, it tastes, Don't know it why, tastes totally different. But it tastes totally different. When you do it all in one, which most com countries do, mm -hmm. it slightly separates the cream. Well, it slightly separates it the cream and way. it makes it makes it taste different. Yes. That's why that's why like when you're using say a can of Ready Whip or whatever here, you get that slight oily slime. Yeah. You don't get that from other countries. Just saying. Yeah, we, we, uh, we, 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 I found out, Jan, that in the state of Tennessee, you can, that um, farms can sell raw milk. Nice. Uh, with, well, with the caveat that it is not for human consumption. Well, same here. They're, they are legally allowed to sell it. Um, in the state of Pennsylvania, you can't do that. No, 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 no. No selling of milk. Well, um, when I when I used to do this show with Karen Carey a uh, hundred years ago, um, one of the first guests we had on was the producer of a film called Farmageddon. It's a documentary. I highly, if you are interested in food at all, I highly suggest that you find that film and watch it. It should be on Netflix. It should be on Amazon Prime. It's probably a free film by now. Um, and you will be amazed at what happens to farmers in this country. You know, people just doing the organic farming bit. If you watch that film, it'll just, it, it crushed me. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. 
still it's still worth seeing it, it's still i still need to recommend it because i don't think enough people have seen what these onerous regulations do to these poor people and these are just normal people they're not part of a big conglomerate and most of the regulations of course are for the big conglomerates to keep them in business not to allow small business owners to have a business and I've tried to make mayonnaise probably half a dozen times, Jeannie. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, make paleo mayonnaise. Um, paleo mayonnaise is the easiest thing in the entire planet to make. All you have to have is a glass and a stick blender that fits down into the glass without very much room on either side of it. It's, it's the simplest thing in the world. Um, I make paleo mayonnaise all the time here. I just well, make mine just quantity. mine just comes out as this oily mess, and it never it never comes out right. You're you're probably so, trying the the problem most people have is you're probably trying to do it too quickly. You got to mix it together really slowly, just a little bit at a time. Take that that's one reason why most restaurants don't actually make their own mayonnaise, because to do really good, very creamy, rich mayonnaise, it takes ages. I've seen somebody doing it. So it's like, oh, you've been working for an hour. You've made how much? Oh, a bit of paint. I've noticed here the big thing here now is aioli. Um, they've they, they've had to give mayonnaise a new name and call it aioli. And it's like, well, that's just thin mayonnaise that you seasoned. It's, I mean, really. Um, but yeah, they just gave it a really fancy name. So you think it's new highfalutin food when it's just seasoned mayonnaise that's running. Well, right, but that's actually supposed to be used mostly on fish dishes. Yeah, that's it's got more. It's had more oil that's, in it. Yeah, that's to make what it it's lighter. for. Yeah. Yeah, we used it at Olive Garden on the squid on the fried calamari. Ugh. Ugh. I, I love squid. Um, squid are some of my favorite creatures on the planet. The idea of eating them kind of just grosses me out um and mostly i think that's because um one of my brothers married an italian woman and <laughs> for <laughs> for uh christmas eve dinner they had me help them prepare and it's like feast of the five fishes um once you prepare a meal like that you never want to eat it because it's squid <laughs> and eel and i'm sorry eel is the worst that shit never stops bleeding Oh, God. Oh. It takes, takes it quite a while to stop moving as well. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, so, like I said, I, I have a real aversion to squid. Well, squid's uh, one of those weird foods. It's like you're cooking it. It's like undercooked, undercooked, undercooked. You look away for a second. Overcooked. Yeah. Use it yeah, as a I rubber use... ball. Drink, drink, it's it's pain in the ass. <laughs> it's it's got to be done a certain way, and you've got to be pretty good at it. Any sort of cooking you do with fish or... Now, in the case of sushi, I guess non-cooking, you really have to pay attention to. I think. Well, another um, one, another food that people make huge mistake with is duck. They do roast duck, and they always overcook it. Well, it's because it's so it, greasy at yeah, first. Well, no, it's you should stop cooking it just when it starts turning from pink on the inside, because yeah. it's going to keep cooking for about twenty minutes after you pull it off the heat, because it's such dense meat. You know, the heat passes through it really easily. But mm -hmm. most people leave it in until it's cooked to the center. And you're like, so then by the time it gets to the table, it's like, 
This is a bit dry and chewy. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't duck supposed to be moist yet? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, people overcook um, it. So was I the only one who was like freaked out about the island of Duck and Moreau? Does anybody know? Um, out and, nah, yeah, I read that. That freaked me out too. Yeah. I, I didn't put it in the show notes because I didn't think it was like a big deal that they made a human pig hybrid but they've done it so it's not all it's not the first crossbreed experimentation they've been doing it for about 30 years <laughs> um, you must remember the mouse mice with ears i, I have remember to, I had a lot of conversations about stuff like that because inevitably um stem cell research comes up and and, and i you know it gets into this dangerous territory where where people are really polarized on one side or the other, and and I just sit here thinking, you want to fertilize these eggs um, that, and then uh, okay, whatever. So I mean, it's just one of them things I have to to bow out of conversations on because I have extremely strong feelings on it, and a lot of people I know are completely on the other side of the border and I don't know is I can completely destroy friendships that I have over something that okay. I have no fucking say in. Okay, well this isn't why it freaked me out. Have you seen the film The Island of Dr. Moreau? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, did you ever see the Doctor Who episode Pig Slaves? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Then you understand why this stuff freaks me out. Absolutely, and it should. It has nothing to do with any sort of scientific reason. It has to do with the science fiction that's built off the idea of chimeras. Do you know what I mean? Science fiction is always supposed to have been our early warning system, right? This is what you don't do. This is how you tell society, don't be a bunch of like uh, neo-Nazi assholes, right? You, You do an episode... Uh, about a planet of ugly people and then a pretty person is born and they're ostracized. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Science fiction's always been your early warning system for I've, not I've, to do things. I've dropped it in chat, but there was a British TV show called Chimera in the early 90s. Oh, wow. Um, based on a book from the early 80s. So there you go. Huh. So <laughs> I, I just... I just find it freaky because of that. that. That's the stuff that freaks me out. But go ahead. It has I nothing mean, to do I, with the science. I get why they want to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's if I'm not mistaken, it's mainly for uh, insulin-dependent diabetics because mm-hmm. they want to try and grow uh, pancreas right. using your own skin material that's grafted with a pig's DNA so mm-hmm. that the, the organ is 100% compatible and there's no chance mm-hmm. of rejection. You don't have to take anti-rejection drugs. I mean, I, I get that. But it's kind of brings to mind Jurassic Park. Um, you were so <laughs> caught up with whether you could, you never stopped to th- think about whether you should. Yeah, it, it kind of is that. And I do understand the science behind it. And I understand the reasoning behind it. I just think in a lot of ways, we're making technological leaps that we're in no way capable of talking about rationally as a society. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. 
mean, today goats producing silk in their milk. Tomorrow, mm-hmm. who knows what? You know about that one. I just, you? I do. Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> I, 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 hold on, Miss James. You know, you you're always talking about um, people paying attention to your show and who watches your show and who listens to it. And mm-hmm. I have to tell you that when you type Farmageddon in a Google search, uh, right. your show comes up number eleven. Wow. <laughs> awesome that was nice to know thank you that's awesome i she was one of my favorite people to have on she i really liked her she's a really nice lady and she has real real reasons for why she wanted to get raw milk for her son who had really bad allergies that were just about killing him and it worked for him you know um i think the way society is going at least with medical choices and and stuff like that they're very strange to me um very how common is gallbladder removal surgery in the uk no idea it's it's not it is not the doctors will tell you okay we're going to you're going to start taking this herb this herb this herb this herb and you're going to take it quite frequently and you're going to drink this tea and we're going to try to save your gallbladder here, the minute you have pain, they're like, oh, let's just yank that out. Well, it's the same in um, all surgeries in the UK. I mean, taking stuff out is like last resort in the UK. Right. It's like, not they do like not that want here, to no. put holes in you and pull bits out, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, that's but, what causes problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is the difference between the United States and, and other countries. Um, I'm the only one in my family who still has my gallbladder, and that's because I went on a, a actually a UK-based regimen of different herbs and teas and stuff to keep mine. Um, and why I'm mostly not eating animal fat because that really causes it to flare up and bother me. Um, I still have but, all my bits, as far as I'm aware. So yeah. <laughs> I I have mostly everything except for my tonsils. They could not wait to take those out when I was a kid. Um, does everybody here still have their tonsils? I, do. I have all my bits and parts and some extras. <laughs> they took my tonsils because I had been on so many antibiotics when I was a child that nothing would work. And they were going to have to put me on low dose, what the doctor called chemotherapy at the time, which was basically a, a, com- a complete systemic poison, which is freaky, but kids do get that sick. They get constant pneumonia and all that stuff. And they pulled mine out. And that was last resort. And they waited three years to do it. Okay. I would call that last resort surgery. Three years. And they tried everything. But now it's very common. If a kid snores too much or they have some earaches, the doctors are like, oh, we'll just get rid of the tonsils. That's not always the way to go. And I'm going to circle back to the island of Dr. Moreau in a second. Uh, Our a large reason why so many people's pancreases are failing is because of the traditional Western diet that we were recommended to eat by the United States Department of Agriculture, um, which is not typically good for us. It's full of corn. It's full of a lot of grains. And those are really hard for your body to digest. Um, they're also really bad for your pancreas. And if people cut out a lot of that stuff and lost 10 or 15 pounds, they would find that most of them are no longer diabetic, that they don't need insulin, that they don't need to have a whole new pancreas or to have an insulin pump implanted. But we don't do that kind of medicine here in the United States. 
we, you know, you know, we do this sort of thing where we put pumps in people, we do surgeries on people, and we might not need to. It might just be lifestyle changes. And I guess we just don't do that much in America. Yeah, they put my mother on uh, interferon and um, chemo for hepatitis C. Oh, wow. When, uh, right, you know, a couple of months before she passed. And she was diabetic, suffering from double renal failure. She was on dialysis three times a week. And she basically said, you know, once uh, after I'd gotten out of prison that, you know, I waited, that I endured this every week, three times a week. And I put up with all this just so that I could see you again. And within three months of me getting out, she just gave up. It's very, that's sad. And I will say, because I had worked in the medical field before, um, I had had a lot of vaccines that other people don't get. Very, you might know what I'm talking about. And with a lot of those vaccines to activate them, they give you interferon. And that is not a nice time <laughs> at all. Well, at yeah, all. When, I, when I was doing um, adult nursing, lots <laughs> of the other students had uh, not nice reactions to some of the drugs you have to take when you're going to be working <laughs> in medicine. Um, well, well, it's to stop you getting HIV and hepatitis yeah. and things like that, so it's necessary. Sure. But yeah, the side effects can be quite extreme because everybody has a different natural level of resistance. Yeah, I mean, uh, as it happens, I'm one of these people that has um, not my my body fights off hepatitis, even if it's the vaccine for hepatitis. So wow. I, I I I will never build up a permanent resistance. So I because I've had two sets problem. of injections for it. Wow, I, I, I don't had like real... needles. I did not enjoy that at all. I didn't enjoy it either. I didn't like the interferon either. I was I was curled up with the flu for three days which wasn't the flu it was it was reaction to the hepatitis b vaccine well yeah and i mean three rounds stimulates your white blood cells yeah oh yeah that it, goes it was really pretty, well <laughs> it was a pretty terrible time for me um apparently i have the kind of immune system that can't take that kind of stimulation so who knew all right we got totally off the beaten track <laughs> completely <laughs> That was a massive, ooh, shiny moment that lasted for like 45 minutes. Okay. Um, very pick one. Let, let's go to the bottom of the issue. Uh, the city sewage thing. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I was hoping you'd pick stoned fish. Oh, yeah. Okay. The plan to test city sewage for drugs is a new form of mass surveillance. Nearly every drug you snort, inject, smoke, okay, butt plug, I didn't know you could do drugs that way, vaporizer free base, eventually ends up back in the water supply via the, your excrement. The one you're surprised by, ask, ask the French about that, they love suppositories. <laughs> well, actually, with my, okay, to, to stop that, when I have migraines, I go and get shots. I go and get shots. They were like, we can give you a suppository. I'm like, I'm dry heaving. You think I'm going to be able to stick that there? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I can't even. Yeah, no, no, no. So I have to go get it. Can you go back to the ooh shiny? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, 
were you gonna say something Jeannie or just laugh, just laughing no I was just trying to derail this <laughs> fish love it well maybe not the ones mutating from it but apparently crabs and trout aren't the only ones sifting through your waste oh yum all the bottom feeders and everybody thinks they're such good eating crabs and lobster and all that shit <laughs> across the globe researchers at wastewater treatment plants are testing for psychoactive substances passed by drug users through their feces and urine the data can be incredibly valuable letting scientists and law enforcement quickly track drug use trends and identify new substances on the market it can also measure the impact of drug supplies to drug policy strategies even highlight which days of the week drug use spikes cocaine on the weekends anyone but with this research comes some ethical entanglements testing waste could help anticipate sharp rise in cannabis or phenyl fentanyl overdoses for example by detecting the drug in sewage but the same strategies can be used to stigmatize against certain populations and as we've seen with the war on drugs in the u.s this could have lasting consequences for those communities Wastewater analysis may become commonplace in the United States in a few years because while there are challenges to getting accurate results, it's very easy to get samples. Traditionally, drug epidemiologists have had to rely on questionnaires, but search surveys aren't cheap and are riddled with response biases since many drug users aren't keen to tell the truth about breaking the law. On the other hand, you can easily track the fallout of drug use, HIV transmission, overdose, rehab check-ins, ER visits, death. But those infrequent incidences only happen after the fact. Drug testing wastewater was first proposed in 2001 by Christian Doughton, a scientist from the Environmental Protection Agency, hoping to raise awareness of the ecological impacts drugs can have. Only about half personal care products and pharmaceuticals are removed by treatment plants in a troubling pee to food to pee loop. These pharmaceutical contaminants, known as chemicals of emerging concern, have researchers in Seattle and Baltimore scrambling to understand their effects on wildlife. But that's working downstream. What about upstream? Italy, in 2005, became the first country to use mass spectrometry, a tool that measures atom and molecule mass in water samples to approximate local cocaine consumption. Discovering that Italy's longest river, the Po, steadily carried the equivalent of about 4 kilograms of cocaine per day, equivalent to 40,000 daily doses. In 2013, researchers looked at 47 WWTPs in 21 European countries, analyzing the narcotic-laced overture of nearly 25 million people. Australia, which has performed wastewater tests in the past, is spending 3.6 million to test 30 sites across the continent, monitoring not only methamphetamine use, but also alcohol. Now, the idea is spreading across China with at least five similar studies planned in the next six months. In mid-December 2016, New Zealand became the largest country to latch on to this trend and have already begun looking for traces of meth, cocaine, heroin, A, PVP, also known as FLACA, MDMA, and creatine, a naturally occurring human byproduct used for a control. But New England's, I'm sorry, New Zealand's approach is somewhat unique. Researchers from the Institute of Environmental Science and Research are also working closely with police. In most cases, this analysis is done by researchers alone, but this kind of tandem relationship may become more common. Only a few such tests have been conducted in North America, a couple near Albany and several in Oregon and Washington, for example. But as the practice catches on and as drug detection technology improves, wastewater analysis is likely to become routine. Like so many other sort of new ideas, a lot of people don't want to be the first person on the dance floor, said Dr. Caleb Bantagreen, a senior researcher at the University of Washington's Alcohol and Drug Abuse Institute. 
He's been scouring wastewater for drugs in King County and elsewhere for the last eight years. But there's a point where you look pretty bad being the last person on the dance floor, he said. On November 16th, the National Drug Emergency Warning System presented a webinar called Using Wastewater Testing as a Drug Epidemiology Tool, hosted by Banta Green and Dr. Daniel Burigod, an associate chemistry professor at the University of Puget Sound. The two researchers who have published together on the topic were recently tapped by the federal government to monitor wastewater for levels of cannabis use before and after legalization in Washington. This work is probably what I would call in its adolescence. It's not fully mature, Banta Green said. We're still learning. There's lots of things to tweak and fine tune, but I do think there is some value now in real-time analysis. That value includes results that are specific, timely, and scalable, and clear, often political boundaries covering most of a given population, excluding areas with septic tanks. You can tell if a large narcotic bust had an impact, if at all, on a community's rate of drug use, for example, and even determine if new synthetic drugs are present. However, even wastewater testing doesn't give a complete picture. There's often missing data, no censoring, such as when populations fluctuate. If the study doesn't have confidence intervals or error bounds, it isn't possible to tell if drug use is more prevalent in the city versus concentrated in a tourist trap, for example, such as London. Italian researchers sampled the waste of 5.5 million Londoners in 2005, but that year the city experienced 24.2 million overnight visits from foreigners. How do you tell which drug-infused urine comes from who? You need to bring in this sort of sociology component as well to help interpret the data, Banta Green said. There's a subtlety that is generally lost. It's important in terms of communicating the results, though, to continue to frame them in the proper context. That context includes illicit medical uses. When heroin breaks down in the body, it becomes morphine, which is often used legitimately in surgery. How do researchers tell legal morphine from illegal morphine if all that excreta mixes together? One method is also looking for exclusive metabolites of heroin, such as 6-acetylmorphine. It's a similar situation when looking for benzogogaline, a cocaine metabolite, or THC-COOH and 11-OCTHC metabolites of cannabis. These metabolites are much easier to distinguish than the unchanged chemical. There are even lawful medical applications for methamphetamine. In an obesity drug called desoxin and levomethamphetamine, present in Vicks vapor inhalers. There's, there's Margaret when you need her. <laughs> and known to give false positives on drug tests. I actually have one of those inhalers that has that desoxin in it. Uh, nevertheless, researchers can actually detect how the methamphetamine was manufactured and determine if it is a pharmaceutical or not. Different manufacturing processes will result in different mixtures of those methamphetamine compounds, and some of the over-the-counter compounds have more or less of those, Banta Green says. The potentials of the over-the-counter prescription medication contributions to the methamphetamine, if I recall, were way under 1% that we believe was detectable. So while it may be tricky, scientists can generally tell if you got your opioids from a doctor or not. What about those exotic new psychoactive molecules constantly being introduced on the black market? According to the UN's 2016 World Drug Report, a total of 644 new drugs have been reported by 102 countries and territories between 2008 and 2015. Wastewater analysis promises to show Real-time results for emerging drugs, including novel benzodiapines, synthetic cannabinoids, and synthetic canthodes, uh, opioids, phenylethylamines, triethylamines, and other new substances. But finding something like a cutting-edge fentanyl analog is incredibly complicated. 
it's challenging. It's very data intensive, but there are ways to pull out compounds that might be in there. You still have to sort of guess a bit what you're looking for or the apparent structure. But is any of this ethical? After all, wastewater analysis is basically drug testing without consent. Should we fear a future where ordinary citizens have their toilet effluents regularly monitored? A study in the scientific journal Addiction found there was no major ethical concerns raised while monitoring large populations of wastewater. However, the paper's authors did say it was necessary to minimize possible adverse consequences in studying smaller populations, such as workers, prisoners, and students. In other words, it's not exactly ethical to drug test all the porta potties at Electric Daisy Carnival, for example, although this type of research is not unheard of. In 2009, a researcher analyzed wastewater at a prison in Caledonia, finding drug use was much lower compared to a nearby town. Thankfully, the prison wasn't revealed, as that may have encouraged strict policy responses, such as restricting visitor access to reduce smuggling, a form of collective punishment. Perhaps that's why a few U.S. cities, out of fear of developing the wrong reputation or attracting unwanted attention, have declined to allow wastewater sampling. If your town gets painted as the meth capital of the country, what kind of message does that send? Analyzing the waste of poor communities could potentially perpetuate a cycle of stigma. And finally, does this research endanger individual privacy? The ability to work upstream to find individual drug users is available to law enforcement if they choose for now, such a narrow focus is too costly to be worth it, not to mention as Bureaucard et al. note. The feasibility issues of thousands point sample source samplers and the legal status of sewage is unclear, including who owns it. In other words, installing drug monitoring filters in everyone's pipeline isn't worth the investment. So don't flush your stash just yet. But that isn't to say in a future in which halfway houses or sole individuals on probation are screened is out of the question, especially as wastewater analysis becomes more routine. In the meantime, it has been suggested that police use wastewater data to guide decisions at strategic and or operational levels or assist the market share held by criminal groups. The law enforcement community has the capacity to do this type of work if they wanted to, but that's not what we're doing. And we're not intersecting with that stakeholder group on this kind of work, Banta Green explained, adding, that also depends on if researchers are willing to work with law enforcement in the first place. Sometimes scientists decide they don't want to give any more information to the police. Even so, the real question is how this wastewater data is used. In the research, Burgard et al. define the issue succinctly. Perhaps the issue of ethics will come down to whether sewage-based data is used for understanding drug epidemiological trends or for handing out punishment. What do you want to make a bet it's going to be the latter? I've got a couple of things quickly on that. Sure. Can't help giggling that in Italy it was the Po they tested. Uh, <laughs> and and the other thing about that one is, I wonder what the levels are now that Berlusconi's not in charge in Italy anymore, since he <laughs> used to have these notoriously wild parties all the time. The other one is the London thing, the amount of tourists, and it's like you, you can imagine the Daily Mail headlines: "Damn foreigners coming over here using all our drugs." <laughs> Save some for us. <laughs> I had a thought on the Italian one. Um, okay. So 40,000 doses every few weeks is what they figure. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, 40,000 daily doses over the weekend. Mm -hmm. That's an awful lot of cocaine off Alter Boy's asses. Oh, ouch. I say I think at least half of it was just Bernal Scooney's bunga bunga parties. Um <laughs> 
it's just, um, it really is interesting that we don't know who owns this. We don't know who owns your waste. That's kind of disgusting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, it kind of goes like last week where we were talking about the immortal life of Henry and Lax. You don't own your own genome. So <laughs> wouldn't it just be amazing if you didn't own your own waste? Go ahead, Jeannie. Oh, I think that they're going to come out and they're going to say, you know, because it went into the public sewer system and, and they can't really identify it as yours specifically, that it's not an invasion of privacy and it became public property. Uh, you know, here's the thing. I have a friend who lives overseas. She's not officially an expatriate, but her husband lives overseas because he works on a military base. Now, all of a sudden over there, they're not giving anybody pain medication at all of any kind. None. They just stopped it dead. It doesn't matter if you just had surgery. Fuck you. You're going to have to deal with it. If you had uh, a steel rod plate put in your head, you're going to have to deal with it. Your back, same thing. Um, nobody's getting pain medication there, even the chronic pain patients. They just don't want to give it to them. And that's because of this whole war on drugs thing where they don't understand that chronic pain patients need help. And um, unfortunately, one of the things I, I learned a whole lot about if you look on my Facebook page, I actually graduated from a, a school of herbalism. So I'm actually able to help people who can't find access to uh, traditional things to find something that they can get, you know, easily, legally, and um, tell them how to work with it so that they can help themselves. Um, if we're getting to a point where we're not giving our chronic pain patients or people who are actually in pain, people who have cancer and are dying from it, if we're not giving these people drugs because we don't want them to become addicted and yet they have real medical need for it. We're at a dangerous tipping point. We're going to drive people right on to heroin. And if we're, <laughs> if we're mass testing the toilet affluent, then we're going to be able to track down to neighborhoods eventually. This is just the way this sort of thing is going. We're criminalizing ordinary people who've done nothing wrong, and we're making police work that much easier where it used to have to be a job where you detected stuff. I'm very uneasy with how this is going. Am I the only one? <laughs> Oh no, I, you you know my views on this. I mean, and it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, obviously, uh, there's something quite seriously wrong with me and the nerves sending pain signals to my brain because they fucking made me a cyborg. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that they really can comprehend. If, if nobody, it's like a migraine headache. Unless you've been there. There is no possible way for you to understand it. There really just isn't. And there are so many people that have never been there that are making these decisions. Um, it's, 
they're turning this this whole war on drugs and this prescription pain meds and this big huge crackdown that they're on is fucking asinine and ignorant to me because at least with prescriptions um there's a way to track how many i'm getting there's mm-hmm. a doctor monitoring my condition to make sure that i'm not abusing them um you know everybody that my insurance companies my doctors um the pharmacy all of these people have oversight of how much of the shit that I am getting. And it's nationally monitored now. So it doesn't matter whether I, it was a prescription that I got in Pennsylvania the first time and now that I'm getting in Tennessee, there are all these people that know that instead of some fucking drug dealer on the corner that's selling heroin or meth or what fucking ever that doesn't give a shit about me other than to take that 50 bucks. Um, and, and, People don't see that. They don't comprehend that. They don't realize it. You know, they look at, oh, my God, poor Michael Jackson. Um, you know what? Fuck him. Uh, and, and I don't. Sorry. Wow. Well, She's right. She's right. Why Why shouldn't he? He's like that and, and judge everybody by it and make right. all these people with serious serious conditions that only want to be able to have some type of quality of life. I was to the point at one time where I sat and all I did was cry because it hurt. The fucking air hurt and people just can't grasp that. And you want to talk about this, this crackdown on, on prescription medications. Fuck you. It, it's it's just crazy and they're going to send people to the street and all these people are going to start doing this fucking heroin that is killing people and but yet there goes your tax dollars on what what the hell is that what is that shot what's that shot that everybody thinks all the fucking cops and everybody should have now narcan you know all these places are going to carry this narcan to save people how about we not put them in the fucking position where they're out on the street getting jacked up heroin and dying in the first place. How about we do that? Well, I mean, and I, I agree with you. And I've talked about, really, everybody should read Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. Um, it, it's a really good book. You learn a lot about the war on drugs and, and how we exported it from this country. Thank you, Puritans. Thank you for coming over from um, the UK. Thank you for bringing your lovely fucking traditions with you. And thank you for never letting that die the fuck out. Um, my my comment on the war on drugs is quite simple Portugal (laughs) that is all we we yeah exactly exactly the war on drugs is ridiculous you know I think um, if you're at all interested in what we call illegal drugs can do there's does anybody remember Amber Lyon this is all stream of consciousness from my head. I'm sorry. Amber Lyon was the one that was it CNN. She did a bunch of stories on Bahrain and the crackdown going on there. And they refused to air it. And they fired her and her people because CNN had a media partnership with the government of Bahrain. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So Bahrain she... doesn't like bad press. They don't. And they got plenty of it. Um, Type in Amber Lyons to Google and you will get an earful. Anyway, um, she was a... Yeah, I mean, the shortcut is, folks, don't go to Bahrain. No, you you don't want to go there. Well, you might like it, 
But if you do something they don't like, you're really not going to like it. <laughs> That's very true. Um, so the short story is Amber Lyon was a war correspondent for a very long time. And she had very, very, very bad PTSD when she came home. Um, it probably didn't help that she was attacked and beaten, among other things. Um, it, that tends to affect you. It, not just if you're a woman. It, you get attacked by anybody, anywhere, whoever you are. That's going to affect you for a very long time. Um, she has a website called Reset.me. And it's basically about how psychedelics and other drugs are used for treatments of very serious psychological disorders. And I know she went and got the Ayushka treatment. Does anybody know what that is? Is that the LSD one? That's the one where if you're addicted to any kind of drugs after you use this stuff, you will never use drugs again. That quite possibly is the LSD one, yeah. Okay. Is that like an abuse for drugs? It, it, it kind of is, but it's natural. It, it's just something that grows out in the wild. Um, but it's it also works for her PTSD. She no longer has it. You, you see her, she's smiling, she's open, she's very talkative, she's a happy person, and she was not before when she was a war correspondent. Um, and the difference between those two people is night and day. And I don't think that her website actually says that people should just, you know, mass use drugs illegally and, and whatever, and, you know, just do a hundred tabs of acid or whatever. That's not what she's talking about. She's talking about how it's been used by ancient cultures and how they use it in very specific ways that it's used. And it's, it's a really interesting website. And um, we criminalize these things that we do. And yet, at our heart, we're animals. Whether or not you believe God was involved in our creation or not, at our heart, we're animals. Watch a National Geographic documentary sometime of what happens when the trees start dropping fruit that are fermented. Watch what the animals do. It's normal to want to forget your troubles for a little while. Drunk elephants um, are hilarious. It's very funny. <laughs> it's some funny stuff, and it's normal. But we've well, as, criminalized yeah, something I mean, that's a normal behavior. Ph philosophers, you know, the, the last, well, since in the decades of the drug war, have been, you know, s screaming, but nobody's listening, that the whole of human history is full of humans getting themselves fucked up. <laughs> we <laughs> like much. alcohol, drugs, stuff like that. We've used it the whole of human history. But you have these Puritans going, no, 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 no use yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it's the same for nicotine. And look what they found last week. They found it shuts off the voices. The schizo well, not shuts off the voices, but it modulates something in the brain of schizophrenics that allows them to have a normal life. Yeah, but nicotine... hallucinating as much, yes. According to these aunties, has no use as a medicine whatsoever. Well, yes, it does. And they're lying. Well, that's just the latest one. That's on top of Alzheimer's, certain types of pain relief, nicotine's helpful with, yeah. mm -hmm. anti-inflammatory response, yep. all sorts of things. Well, 
I can remember, um, I don't know if anybody, I, I researched the Antilles quite thoroughly before I ever got involved with Kassan. One of the places that I found actually invaluable to finding really old research into nicotine was a place called Forces. And Forces has a bunch of papers you can no longer, they've been scrubbed from the web. But uh, you can no longer find those anymore. And it used to be in Africa, they didn't do heart transplants. Do you know what they'd do? If your heart was fucked up, they would open up your chest. They would clear out the blockages. And then to make things stronger, they would paint the areas that had these blockages with nicotine to ensure like new blood vessel growth. And people were fine. They used that as a poor man's heart replacement. And they did it for years successfully, no problems. But you can't find the scientific papers on how it was done or why it was done or when it was done unless you go to forces. So saying that this stuff has no use is a lie. And anybody who says it doesn't is pretty much a liar. I don't know. And you already know my opinion on it. Legalize everything. I agree. Le the good, the bad, legalize it all. Mm -hmm. We've gotten into a habit of trying to legislate and protect those who nature would otherwise eliminate from the gene pool. And we wonder why California is about to fall off the <laughs> ocean. Well, you know what's fucked idiots. up? Okay, you know what's fucked up? You'll like this. Since we're talking about California... And they're lovely. Is it Proposition 56 warning? I think it's Proposition 56. Anyway, um, they have these warnings on everything. Everything causes cancer. The paint in your hotel room can cause cancer. Your bed sheets can cause cancer. Your nail polish remover definitely causes cancer. Uh, so does your nail polish. It, the Prop 56 warnings are ridiculous and they're on everything. So one of the things that was on the protocol for... Um, gallbladder keeping your gallbladder and keeping it healthy and getting rid of the stones because they will eventually go away if you're you know if you're persistent enough you can make them go away uh one of the things on the protocol was beets i hate beets won't eat beets i just don't like them but you can get like beet powder capsules so i ordered some beet powder capsules from amazon what do you think is on the top of these beet powder capsules prop 65 warning Prop 65 warning. But it, and it says, this is for residents of California only. Otherwise, disregard. Yeah, this I reckon in California, if anybody stops moving long enough, that they'll end up with answer. a sign stuck on them. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't moved for 10 seconds, sign. <laughs> it's just ridiculous the way that is. And I agree. Honestly, I think we should remove all safety warnings. You know, the thing that says don't take your TV into the bathtub, that needs to go. <laughs> Do not use your curling iron internally, that needs to go. You know, any sort of warning not to be a fucking walking moron needs to be taking off of products. The, the one that always got me was caution hot on a solar grill. You know, a gas-powered <laughs> grill. Yeah. Caution my, hot. My... No shit. <laughs> my favorite one is there's one on a curling iron that says do not use while sleeping. Jeannie, have you ever curled your hair while you were asleep? Um, no, I, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my knowledge. Sleep hair dressing, the hidden problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
I think we need to really remove a lot of these warnings. And I, I actually agree with you. And I'm not a fan of Darwinism. I think at some point we have to protect the vulnerable. That sounds fucked up coming from somebody who says we don't need a government. I really believe, but I think that was that would be something you would do as part of your community. Do you know but, what I mean? But there is a difference between protecting the vulnerable and protecting the downright thick as shit people. <laughs> I agree. Because some of you them know, I, are just don't think. They don't think, and and I'm not saying they need to be forcibly removed from the gene pool. I'm just saying let's 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 take a normal starting point and put everybody at the same starting point and see what happens. Let's just see what happens. Let's remove all the stupid warnings, you know, caution hot on your fucking coffee that you got from McDonald's. It's in a styrofoam cup that you just got. And you, you see steam coming up from it. That doesn't need a caution hot warning on it. It, it just does not. Um, let's remove all these warnings and just go with it. Let's just, See what happens. Although the hot warning on the apple pies probably is wise. That that's been there since I was little. That yeah. was before they ever got litigated. So I mean that that can stay. But well, those any... things are nuclear hot. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I don't get it. Deep yeah, fry an apple but... pie. Who'd have thought? Yeah, basically up apple jam in a fryer. <laughs> yeah, it gets real hot. <laughs> it is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? It is kind of ridiculous. Um, so, yeah. Um, Jean, oh, if you if want you to buy pick a really, store... really, really fresh donuts, as in they're made in front of you, they don't have that warning on them, which is really strange because they have similar effect depending on what's inside them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the the jam that they put in the jelly filled donuts is not hot when they put it in, though. Well, it's not supposed to be. Um, when I worked at Dunkin' Donuts, it wasn't. When I worked at Dunkin' Donuts, we had to poke the holes ourselves. It's, and it's, then not, it. it's not really the jam. Jam takes a while to heat up. It's some of the chocolatey, custardy type fillings. That oh. stuff can heat up quite fast in contact with the freshly fried Baked. donut. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I'm just saying, we, we used to have to pipe it in. So, uh, yeah. hey, you know what's you know what's that? I got a raise. I finally make as much as I did as when I was 16 piping fucking jelly into goddamn donuts at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> I finally make that much money again. Uh, I'm going to be 45. So that's good. Um, does that's anybody have Yeah, I do. How about the, the doomsday for the super rich? Let's uh -huh. Let's see how the super rich do it. <laughs> okay, can you read the story before that? Because um, I'm going to need to go get water to, to read the second one. So if you read that one for me, I'll read the next one when I come back. If you can give me a second. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Uh, this comes from the Institute staff, and it is Johnson Elites Eyeing the Exit Signals, America's Crisis. Oh, Institute President Rob Johnson, interviewed by the New Yorker on hedge fund managers and the market for airstrips in New Zealand. Interviewed as part of an extremely, or sorry, interviewed as part of an extraordinary New Yorker investigation into growing anxiety among America's corporate elite over the potential for anarchic social collapse, Institute President Robert Johnson saw his peers talk of bolt holes in New Zealand as reflecting a deeper crisis 
Johnson told writer Evan Anzones, oh, I can't pronounce this guy's last name. Sorry, folks. Okay, thank you. Of the mounting anxiety he had encountered among hedge fund managers and other wealthy Americans he knew. More and more, we are saying, you've got to have a private plane, Johnson said. You have to assure that the pilot's family will be taken care of, too. They have to be on the plane. He writes, by January 2015, Johnson was sounding the alarm. The tensions produced by acute incoming inequality were becoming so pronounced that some of the world's wealthiest people were taking steps to protect themselves. At the World Economic Forum in Davros, Switzerland, Johnson told the audience, I know hedge fund managers all over the world who are buying airstrips and farms in places like New Zealand because they think they need a getaway. Johnson bemoaned the lack of a spirit of stewardship and an openness to more aggressively redistribute tax policies among the wealthy. 25 hedge fund managers make more money than all of the kindergarten teachers in America combined, he told the New Yorker. Being one of those 25 doesn't feel good. I think they've developed a heightened sensitivity. If anything, he wrote, inequality is widening. Noting recent statistics from the National Bureau of Economic Research that showed that while the incomes for the top 1% of Americans have nearly tripled, half of the population was earning at the same level they did in 1980. Comparing Americans' wealth gap to that seen in the Democratic Republic of Congo, if we had more equal distribution of income and much more money and energy going into public school systems, parks and recreation, the arts and health care, it could take an awful lot of sting out of society, Johnson said. We've largely dismantled those things. <laughs> I think I agree with most of this, but that's okay. I'll keep reading it. He saw an elite anxiety as an indicator America, of America's social crisis. Why do people who are envied for being so powerful appear to be so afraid, Johnson said. What does that really tell us about our system? It's a very odd thing. You're basically seeing that the people who've been the best at reading the tea leaves, the ones with the most resources because that's how they made their money, are now the ones most preparing to pull the ripcord and jump out of the plane. Okay. That actually leads to the doomsday prep for the super rich, which is, holy Jesus, the longest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have to read all of it. Uh, I, I think I disagree with you there. This was five. Um, and the reason I think I disagree with you there is because you're really only going to get a picture if you hear the whole thing. Doomsday prep for the super rich. Some of the wealthiest people in America, in Silicon Valley, New York, and beyond, are getting ready for the crack up of civilization. By even Enosis. Stephen Huffman, the 33-year-old co-founder and CEO of Reddit, which is valued at $600 million dollars, was nearsighted until November 2015 when he arranged to have laser eye surgery. He underwent the procedure not for the sake of convenience or appearance, but rather for a reason he doesn't usually talk much about. He hopes it will improve his odds of surviving a disaster, whether natural or man-made. 
if the world ends and not even if the world ends, but if we have trouble getting contacts or glasses, this is going to be a huge pain in the ass, he told me recently. Without them, I'm fucked. Huffman, who lives in San Francisco, has large blue eyes, thick sandy hair, and an air of reckless, I'm sorry, relentless curiosity. At the University of Virginia, he was a competitive ballroom dancer who hacked his roommate's website as a prank. He's less focused on a specific threat, a quake on the San Andreas pandemic, a dirty bomb, than he is on the aftermath. The temporary collapse of our government and our structures, as he puts it. I own a couple of motorcycles. I have a bunch of guns and ammo, food. I figure with that, I can hole up in my house for some amount of time. Survivalism, the practice of preparing for a crack up of civilization, tends to evoke a certain picture. The woodsman in the tinfoil hat, the hysteric with the horde of beans, the religious doomsayer. But in recent years, survivalism has expanded to more affluent quarters, taking root in Silicon Valley and New York City, among technology executives, hedge fund managers, and others in their economic cohort. Last spring, as the presidential campaign exposed increasingly toxic divisions in America, hmm, Antonio Garcia Martinez, a 40-year-old former Facebook product manager living in San Francisco, bought five wooded acres on an island in the Pacific Northwest and bought in generators, solar panels, and thousands of rounds of ammunition. When society loses a healthy founding myth, it descends into chaos, he told me. The author of Chaos Monkeys, an Arabic Silicon Valley memoir, Garcia Martinez wanted a refuge that would be far from cities, but not entirely isolated. All these dudes think one guy alone could somehow withstand the roving mob, he said. No, you're going to need to form a local militia. You just need so many things to actually ride out the apocalypse. Once he started telling peers in the Bay Area about his little island project, they came out of the woodwork to describe their own preparations, he said. I think people who are particularly attuned to the levelers by which society actually works understand that we are skating on really thin cultural ice right now. In private Facebook groups... Wealthy survivalists swap tips on gas masks, bunkers, and locations safe from the effects of climate change. One member, the head of an investment firm, told me, I keep a helicopter gassed up all the time, and I have an underground bunker with an air filtration system. He said that a lot of his preparations probably put him at the extreme end among his peers, but he added, a lot of my friends do the guns and the motorcycles and the gold coins. That's not too rare anymore. Tim Chang, a 40-year-old managing director at Mayfield Fund, a venture capital firm, told me, there's a bunch of us in the Valley. We meet up and have these financial hacking dinners and talk about backup plans people are doing. It runs the gamut from a lot of people stocking up on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to figuring out how to get second passports if they need it to having vacation homes in other countries that could be escape havens. He said, I'll be candid. I'm stockpiling now in real estate to generate passive income, but also to have havens to go to. He and his wife, who is in technology, keep a set of bags packed for themselves and their four-year-old daughter. You know what those are called. <laughs> Bug out bags. He told me, I kind of have this terror scenario. Oh my God, if there's a civil war or a giant earthquake that cleavers off part of California, we want to be ready. When Marvin Lyo, a former Yahoo executive who is now a partner at 500 Startups, a venture capital firm, considered his preparations, he decided that his caches of water and food were not enough. What if someone comes and takes this, he asked me. To protect his wife and daughter, he said, I don't have guns, but I have a lot of other weaponry. I took classes in archery. Well, archery is good if you're trying to fight off someone who's wearing bulletproof armor. Um, not the metal stuff, but other kind. For some, it's just programmer entertainment. 
a kind of real-world sci-fi with gear. For others, like Huffman, it's been a concern for years. Ever since I saw the movie Deep Impact, he said, the film released in 1998 depicts a comet striking the Atlantic and the race to escape the tsunami. Everybody trying to get out and they're stuck in traffic. That scene happened to be filmed near my high school. Every time I drove through that stretch of road, I would think, I need to own a motorcycle because everybody else is screwed. Huffman has been a frequent attendee at Burning Man, the annual clothing optional festival in the Nevada desert, where artists mingle with mobiles. He fell in love with one of its core principles, radical self-reliance, which he takes to mean happy to help others but not wanting to require others. Among survivalists, or preppers as some call themselves, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, stands for Foolishly Expecting Meaningful Aid. Huffman has calculated that in the event of a disaster, he would seek out some form of community. Being around other people is a good thing. I also have the somewhat egotistical view that I'm a pretty good leader. I will probably be in charge, or at least not a slave, when push comes to shove. Over the years, Huffman has become increasingly concerned about basic American political stability and the risk of large-scale unrest. He said, some sort of institutional collapse, then you just lose shipping, that sort of stuff. Prepper blogs call this scenario WROL, without rule of law. Huffman has come to believe contemporary life rests on a fragile consensus. I think to some degree, we all collectively take it on faith that our country works, that our currency is valuable, that the peaceful transfer of power, transfer of power, all of those things we hold dear work because we believe they work. While I do believe they're quite resilient and we've been through a lot, certainly we're going to go through a lot more. In building Reddit, a community of thousands of discussion threads into one of the most frequently visited sites in the world, which I don't understand. I think Reddit's terrible to read. Huffman has grown aware of the way that technology alters our relations with one another for the better and worse. He's witnessed how social media can magnify public fear. It's easier for people to panic when they're together, he said, pointing out that the internet has made it easier for people to be together. It also alerts people to emerging risks. Long before the financial crisis became front page news, early signs appeared in users' comments on Reddit. People were starting to whisper about mortgages. They were worried about student debt. They were worried about debt in general. There was a lot of, this is too good to be true. This doesn't smell right, he added. There's probably some false positives in there as well, but in general, I think we're a pretty good gauge of public sentiment. When we're talking about a faith-based collapse, you're going to start seeing the chips in the foundation on social media first. How did a preoccupation with the apocalypse come to flourish in Silicon Valley, a place known to the point of cliche for unsighting confidence in its ability to change the world for the better? Those impulses are not as contradictory as they seem. Technology rewards the ability to imagine wildly different futures. Ray Behat, the head of Bloomberg Data, a San Francisco-based venture capital firm, told me, what you, when you do that, it's pretty common that you take things at infinium, and that leads you to utopias and dystopias, he said. It can inspire radical optimism, such as this cryonics movement, which calls for freezing bodies after death in the hope that science will one day revive them, or bleak scenarios. Tim Chang, the venture capitalist who keeps his bags packed, told me, my current state of mind is oscillating between optimism and sheer terror. In recent years, survivalism has been engaged in edging deeper into the mainstream culture. In 2012, National Geographic Channel launched Doomsday Preppers, a reality show featuring a series of Americans bracing for what they called when the shit hits the fan. The premiere drew more than 4 million viewers, and by the end of the first season, it was the most popular show in the channel's history. A survey commissioned by National Geographic found that 40% of Americans believed that stocking up on supplies or building a bomb shelter was a wiser investment than a 401k. 
online that prepper discussions run from folksy a mom's guide to preparing for civil unrest to grim how to eat a pine tree to survive the re-election of barack obama was a boon for the prepping industry conservative devotees who accused obama of stroking racial tensions why would we do that restricting gum rights and expanding the national debt loaded up on the types of freeze-dried cottage cheese and beef stroganoff promoted by commentators like glenn beck and sean hannity a network of readiness trade shows attracted convention conventioneers with classes on duting uh practiced on a pig trotter um sorry suturing and a photo opportunities with survivalists from the tv show naked and afraid the fears were different in silicon valley Around the same time that Huffman on Reddit was watching the advance of the financial crisis, Justin Can heard the first inklings of survivalism among his peers. Can co-founded Twitch, a gaming network that was later sold to Amazon for nearly a billion dollars. Some of my friends were like, the breakdown of society is imminent. We should stockpile food, he said. I tried to, but then we got a couple of bags of rice and five cans of tomatoes. We would have been dead if there was actually a real problem. I asked Ken the, the other things I can worry about and prepare for. Like, oh, okay, we would have been dead if there was a real problem. What his prepping friends had in common? Lots of money and resources, he said. What are the other things I can worry about and prepare for? It's like insurance. Shang Wang, an early Facebook employee, was the CEO of Reddit from 2012 to 2014. He, too, had eye surgery for survival purposes, eliminating his dependence as he put it on a non-sustainable external aid for perfect vision. In an email, Wang told me, most people just assume improbable events don't happen. But technological people tend to view risk very mathematically. He continued, the tech preppers do not necessarily think a collapse is likely. They consider it a remote, a remote event, but one with a severe downside. So given how much money they have, spending a fraction of their network to hedge against this is a logical thing to do. How many wealthy Americans are really making preparations for catastrophe? It's hard to know exactly. A lot of people don't like to talk about it. Anonym and then. Anonymity is priceless, one hedge fund manager told me, declining an interview. Sometimes the topic emerges in unexpected ways. Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn and a prominent investor, recalls telling a friend he was thinking of visiting New Zealand. Oh, are you going to get apocalypse insurance, the friend asked. I'm like, huh? Hoffman told me New Zealand, he discovered, is a favored refuge in the event of a cataclysm. Uh, Hoffman said, saying you're buying a house in New Zealand is kind of a wink, wink, say no more. Once you've done the Masonic handshake, they'll be like, oh, you know, I have a broker who sells ICBM silos and they're nuclear hardened and they kind of look like they would be interesting to live in. I asked Hoffman to estimate what share of fellow Silicon Valley billionaires have acquired some level of apocalypse insurance in the form of a hideaway in the U.S. or abroad. I would guess 50 plus percent, he said, but that's parallel with the decision to buy a vacation home. Human motivation is complex, and I think people can say, I now have a strong safety blanket for this kind of thing that scares me. The fears vary, but many worry that artificial, as artificial intelligence takes away growing sharp jobs, there will be a backlash against Silicon Valley, America's second highest concentration of wealth. I have to take a drink. Does anybody have a comment on any of this stuff so far? Um, Alex Jones does the same thing, and he's decidedly extreme right wing. Um, I think what this is saying is you're now seeing the left wing doing this. Um, you don't generally see a consensus between the left wing and the right wing, even though they're on the same fucking bird. You know what I mean? Well, and I think it's hysterically fucking funny when you think about the fact that, um, you know, 
I could potentially be on a terror watch list. I'm the least terroristic person you're ever fucking going to find. But because I buy pressure canners two at a time. Well, I use them two at a time for canning food. And Jan, we have repeatedly over and over and over again on this show read stories where they're making it illegal to to what they term stockpile, which yep. is what country folks term putting up for the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're making laws against it. Yet yep. the top 1% are buying missile silos. And I don't really know as I would recommend anybody buying a missile silo because if there ever is a nuclear war, um, all these other countries know where all this shit is already. <laughs> so I don't know that I'd want to be living in one of the motherfuckers. But, you know, it's... It floors me that they're making the the country ways of providing for your family and being self-sufficient um, illegal and and yet these whack jobs want to go buy an island hey if, if I had the money I'd buy a fucking island I'll tell you I agree, I agree with the silo thing um, I wouldn't <laughs> the, the, they said it there oh it's nuclear hardened yeah I don't think yeah. they read the specs very well uh, it's designed to last long enough to launch its missiles. It's not designed to last forever. So if you're stuck in yeah. there and there's a nuclear strike anywhere near it, yet you'll survive longer than the people outside. But it's still got a finite limit. <laughs> oh, and it's not. And it's if somebody really wants to break into it, they will break into it. <laughs> Yeah, see, when it comes down to the the haves versus the have-nots in a shit-hits-the-fan scenario, mm-hmm. um, the people who have struggled daily for their entire lives are more likely to survive the end of law than the people who depend on the rule of law to maintain their wealth. Because when the shit hits the fan, if I don't have it, I know where I'm going. To the people who have it, and I'm gonna take it. You know, again, valid, valid points. Okay, um, okay. Uh, the fear is very, but Mary, many worry as artificial intelligence takes away a growing share of jobs, there will be a backlash against Silicon Valley, America's second highest concentration of wealth. Southwestern Connecticut is first. You hear that, Kevin? I've heard this theme from a bunch of people, Hoffman said. Is the country going to turn against the wealthy? No. Let's see. Last year, Oxfam released its statistics that showed wealth was in the hands. Most of the wealth in the world was in the hands of 26 people. This year, Oxfam did the same thing again and found that same concentration of wealth was in the hands of eight people. That leaves the rest of us 15% to try and make it with. I'm just throwing that out there. That's just statistical. That's just math. Uh, Is the country going to turn against the wealthy? Is it going to turn against technological innovation? Is it going to turn into civil disorder? The CEO of another large tech company told me, 
it's still not at the point where the industry insiders would turn to each other with a straight face and ask what their plans are for some apocalyptic event, he went on. But having said that, I actually think that it's logically reasonable and appropriately conservative. He noted the vulnerabilities exposed by the Russian cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee. Fuck, please stop spreading that. That's a goddamn lie. And also by a large-scale hack on October 21st, which disrupted the Internet and North America and Western Europe. That was by a botnet. Our food supply is dependent on GPS logistics and weather forecasting, he said. And those systems are generally dependent on the Internet. And the Internet is dependent on DNS, the system that manages the domain names. Go risk factor by risk factor by risk factor, acknowledging there are many you don't even know about. And you ask, what is the chance of this breaking in the next decade? Or invert it, what is the chance that nothing breaks in 50 years? One measure of survivalism spread is that some people are starting to speak out against it. Next, Lich, Lev, Levchin, founder of PayPal and a firm, a lending startup, told me, it's one of the few things about Silicon Valley that I actively dislike. The sense that we are superior giants who move the needle, and if it's our own failure, must be spared. Kind of a theme with the rich. We talked about Davos last week. Mm -hmm. it's the same sort of thing still applies to these fucking idiots here. Um, to Levchin, preparing for survival is a moral miscalculation. He prefers shut down party conversations on the topic. I typically ask people, so you're worried about the pitchforks? much money have you donated to your local homeless shelter? This connects the most, in my mind, to the realities of the income gap. All other forms of fear that people bring up are artificial. In his view, this is the time to invest in solutions, not escape. At the moment, we are actually at a relatively benign point in the economy. When the economy heads south, you will have a bunch of people that are really in bad shape. What do we expect then? The opposite side of the the opposite side of the country, similar awkward conversations have been unfolding in some financial circles. Robert H. Duggar worked as a lobbyist in the financial industry before he became a partner at a global hedge fund, Tudor Investment Corporation. In 1993, after 17 years, he retired to focus on philanthropy and investments. Anybody who's in this community knows people who are worried that America is headed towards something like the Russian Revolution, he told me recently. To manage that fear, Duggar said he had seen two very different responses. People know the only real answer is fix the problem, he said. It's a reason most of them give a lot of money to good causes. At the same time, though, they invest in the mechanisms of escape. He recalled a diner in New York City after 9-11 and the bustling of the dot-com bubble, the bursting of the dot-com bubble. A group of centi-millionaires and a couple billionaires were working through the end-of-America scenarios and talking about what they'd do. Most said they'll fire up their planes and take their families to western ranches or homes in other countries. One of the guests was skeptical, Duggar said. He leaned forward and asked, Are you taking your pilot's family too? And what about the maintenance guys? If revolutionaries are kicking in your doors, how many of the people in your life will you have to take with you? The questioning continued. In the end, most agreed they couldn't run. Elite anxiety cuts across political lines. Even financiers who supported Trump for president, hoping he would cut taxes and regulations, have been unnerved in the ways his insurgent campaign seems to have hastened a collapse of respect for established institutions. Well, that's because institutions are actually against the Constitution, but neither here nor there. Duggar said, the media is under attack now. Well, they wonder, is the court system next? Do we go from fake news to fake evidence? For people whose existence depends on enforceable contracts, this is life or death. 
Robert A. Johnson sees his peers talk of fleeing as the symptom of a deeper crisis. At 59, Johnson has tousled civil hair, silver hair and a soft-spoken avuncular composure. He earned degrees in electrical engineering and economics at MIT, had a PhD in economics at Princeton, and worked on Capitol Hill before entering finance. He became a managing director at the hedge fund Soros Fund Management. In 2009, after the onset of the financial crisis, he was named head of a think tank, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. When I visited Johnson long ago, not long ago, in his office on Park Avenue South, he described himself as an accidental student of civil anxiety. He grew up outside Detroit in Gross Point Park, the son of a doctor, and as he watched his father's generation experience the fracturing of Detroit. What I'm seeing now in New York is sort of like old music coming back, he said. These are friends of mine. I used to live in Belhaven in Greenwich, Connecticut, Louis Bacon. Paul Tudor Jones and Ray Dalio, hedge fund managers, were all within 50 yards of me. For my own career, I would just talk to these people. More and more, they were saying, you have to have a private plane. You have to assure the pilot's family will be taken care of, too. They have to be on the plane. By January 2015, Johnson was sounding the alarm. The tensions produced by acute income inequality were becoming so pronounced that some of the world's wealthiest people were taking steps to protect themselves. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, which was just horrible. It always is. Johnson told the audience, I know hedge fund managers all over the world who are buying airstrips and farms in places like New Zealand because they think they need a getaway. Johnson wishes that the wealthy would adopt a greater spirit of stewardship and openness to policy change that could include, for instance, a more aggressive tax on inheritance. 25 hedge fund managers make more money than all the kindergarten teachers in America combined, he said. Being one of those 25 doesn't feel good. I think they've developed a heightened sensitivity the gap is widening further. In December, the National Bureau of Economic Research published a new analysis by the economists Thomas Pitkey, Manuel Seves, and Gabriel Zuckman, who found that half of American adults have been completely shut off from economic growth since the 1970s. Approximately 117 million people earn, on average, the same income they did in 1980, while the typical income for the top 1% has nearly tripled. That gap is comparable to the gap between average incomes in the U.S. and the Democratic Republic of Congo, the authors wrote. Johnson said, if we had a more equal distribution of income and much more money and energy going into public school systems, park, recreation, the arts, healthcare, it could take an awful lot of the sting out of society. We've largely dismantled these things. As public institutions deteriorate, elite anxiety has emerged as a gauge of our national predicament. Why do people who are envied being, for being so powerful appear to be so afraid, Johnson to ask. What does that really tell us about our system? He added, it's a very odd thing. You're basically seeing the people who've been the best at reading the tea leaves, the one with the most resources, because that's how they made their money, are now the ones most preparing to pull the ripcord and jump out of the plane. Which, that was part of the first story. Thank you, Jeannie, that you read. On a cool evening in early November, I rented a car in Wichita, Kansas, and drove north from the city through slanting sunlight across suburbs out beyond the last shopping center where the horizon settles into farmland. After a couple hours, just before the town of Corcadana, I head west down a dirt track flanked by corn and soybean fields, winding through darkness until my light settled on a steel gate. A guard dressed in camouflage held a semi-automatic rifle. He ushered me through and in the darkness, I could see the outline of a vast concrete dome with a metal blast door partly ajar. I was greeted by Larry Hall, the CEO of the Survival Condo Project, a 15-story luxury apartment complex built in an underground Atlas missile silo. 
The facility housed a nuclear warhead from 1961 to 65 when it was decommissioned. At a site conceived for the Soviet nuclear threat, Hall has erected defense against the fears of a new era. It's true relaxation for the ultra-wealthy, he said. They can come out here. They know there are armed guards outside. The kids can run around. Hall got the idea for the project about a decade ago when he read the federal government was reinventing, reinvesting in catastrophe planning, which had languished after the Cold War. During the September 11th attacks, the Bush administration activated a continuity of government plan, transporting selected federal workers by helicopter and bus to fortified locations, but after years of disuse, computers and other equipment in the bunkers were out of date. Bush ordered a new, renewed focus on continuity plans, and FEMA launched annual government-wide exercises. The most recent, Eagle Horizon, in 2015, simulated hurricanes, improvised nuclear devices, earthquakes, and cyber attacks. I started saying, well, wait a minute. What does the government know that we don't know, Hall said. In 2008, he paid $300,000 for the silo and finished construction. In December 2012, at a cost of nearly $20 million, he created the 12-room, I'm sorry, 12 private apartments. Four um, full-floor units were advertised at $3 million. Half floor was half the price. He sold every unit except one for himself, he said. Most preppers don't actually have bunkers. Hardened shelters are expensive and complicated to build. The original silo of Hall's complex was built by the Army Corps of Engineers to withstand a nuclear strike. The interior can support a total of 75 people. It has enough food and fuel for five years off the grid by raising tilapia and fish tanks and hydroponic vegetables under grow lamps with renewable power. It could function indefinitely, Hall said. In a crisis, his SWAT team-style trucks, the Pitbull VX armored up to 50 caliber, will pick up any owner within 400 miles. Residents with private planes can land in Salina, about 30 miles away. In his view, the Army Corps did the hardest work by choosing the location. They looked at height above sea level, the seismology of an area, how close it is to large population centers, he said. Hall, in his late 50s, is barrel-chested and talkative. He studied business and computers at the Florida Institute of Technology and went on to specialize in networks and data centers for Northrop Grumman, Harris Corporation, and other defense contractors. He now goes back and forth between Kansas, uh, the Kansas silo, and a home in Denver suburbs where his wife, a paralegal, lives with their 12-year-old son. Paul led me through the garage, down a ramp, and into a lounge with a stone fireplace, a dining area, and a kitchen to one side. It had the feel of a steel uh, ski condo without windows, pool table, stainless steel appliances, leather couches. To maximize space, Hall took ideas from cruise ship design, who were accompanied by Mark Minoski, an engineer who manages day-to-day preparations. While they finished dinner, steak, baked potatoes, and salad, Hall said the hardest part of the project was sustaining life underground. He studied how to avoid depression, add more lights, prevent clicks, rotate chores, and simulate life above ground. The condos are all filled with LED windows that show live video of the prairie above the silo. Owners can opt instead for pine forests or other vistas. One prospective resident from New York City wanted a video of Central Park. All four seasons, night and day, Minoski said. She wanted the sounds, the taxis, and the honking of the horns. Some survivalists disparaged Hall for creating an exclusive refuge for the wealthy and have threatened to seize his bunker in a crisis. Hall waved away the possibility when I raced with him over dinner. You can send all the bullets you want into this place. If necessary, as guards return fire, it said. He said, we've got a sniper post. Recently, I spoke on the phone with Tyler Allen, a real estate developer in Lake Mary, Florida, who told me that he paid $3 million for one of Hall's condos. Allen said he worries that America faces a future of social conflict and government efforts to deceive the public. 
He suspects the Ebola virus was allowed to enter the country in order to weaken the population. When I asked how friends usually responded to his ideas, he said the natural reaction that you get most of the time is for them to laugh because it scares them. But he added, my credibility has gone through the roof. Ten years ago, this just seemed crazy that all this was going to happen. The social unrest and the cultural divide in the country, the race baiting and the hate mongering. I asked how he planned to get to Congress from Florida in a crisis. If a dirty bomb goes off in Miami, everybody's going to go to their house and congregate in bars. It's glued to the TV. Well, you got 40 hour, 48 hours to get the hell out of there. Helen told me that in his view, taking precautions is unfairly stigmatized. They don't put tinfoil on your head if you're the president and go to Camp David, he said. But they do put tinfoil on your head if you have the means and you take the steps to protect your family should a problem occur. Why do dystopian urges emerge at certain points and not others? Doomsday is a prophecy, a literary genre, and business opportunity is never static. It evolves with our anxieties. The earliest Puritan settlers saw awe-inspiring bounty of American wilderness and the prospect of both apocalypse and paradise. <clears throat> when in May of 1870, sudden darkness settled on the New England, farmers perceived it as a cataclysm heralding the return of Christ. In fact, the darkness was caused by enormous wildfires in Ontario. D.H. Lawrence diagnosed a specific strain of American dread. Doom, 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 he wrote in 1923. Something seems to whisper in the very dark trees of America. Does anybody have any comments on the rest of this? I mean, on what I've read so far. Why sell the apartments for cash? What are you going to do with that cash if the shit hits the fan? Well, but he can use it now, is the point. He's, he's using the cash now. He doesn't need the cash now. He already has the money. These are already the wealthiest people in America. What do they have a need for more money? Other than, I guess, just the deeply ingrained greed for more money, but, you know. It doesn't make any sense to me either, but who knows? Yeah, they these, never pass. All these people have been uh, paying too much attention to Fallout games. Uh, <laughs> I like Fallout New Vegas. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yes, all, all we. This guy's basically trying to set up vault tech. I've built my vault. All come and live with me. Maybe the. I, I suspect none of them have actually seen those games. I don't think so. If they did, they probably wouldn't. Because none, their none of the vaults it. that appear in those games turn out too well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. Now the Fallout games are actually a really good example for. Sort of. I don't want to say what you could expect, but what is a possible scenario for what could happen were the bottom to collapse. Oh, and another classic for people, loads of rich people, all putting themselves in one place. The last year's film, High Rise. Didn't see that. Oh, you should watch it. It's excellent fun. <laughs> excellent fun. Does okay. it not... Does it not irritate anyone else that the people that directly caused the conditions that they're trying to flee from are trying to survive them? No, I mean, I think they should be forced to take their chances with the rest of us. I think Congress, when they pass a law, should be forced to obey it. I think when they passed Obamacare, they should have had to get their insurance from the exchanges. I think when they pass a tax bill, they need to be under that same tax bill, I think 
it's bullshit that Congress and other wealthy people can just disregard insider trading. Um, that's bullshit. They never get charged when they do it, and they know stuff we don't. Um, there's a double standard in society, and I can understand being angry about it. It pisses me off. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you shouldn't also, be subject. We don't live in the same America, put it that way. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the, the thing these rich assholes, mostly <laughs> assholes for the most part, if this is their plan, need to remember is they have this plan in place. Uh -huh. Reality loves shitting on plans. Ask any, yeah. ask any general who's planned a, a war. It's like a plan only lasts until the first meeting with the enemy. That's mm -hmm. standard in military. So these people yeah. have these careful Armageddon plans, which will be completely derailed as soon as Armageddon happens. Because <laughs> that's you know, what happens. I mean, you can do your best to prepare for your friends and your family and yourself. And you should, you absolutely should. But this is on an entirely different level. Jeannie, are you still, still here? Now? Yes, I'm still here, Jan. Thoughts? Before I go, I go into, into the last. I think, I think I have, I have ranted quite well. I still think they're effing morons for building this shit in missile silos that, you know, Hey, um, it's not hard to figure out where those fuckers are now. <laughs> okay. Well, they're all on maps for a start. Uh... <laughs> yeah, and do they not think that these other governments that might want to do us in are not going to specifically target those places? Because, hey, well, oh, well, they're not going to target it because it's well known that it doesn't contain a nuclear missile anymore. No, but it contains the idiots that they want to get rid of first. No, because all enemy governments know for sure is it was decommissioned, but governments are really good at sneakily recommissioning a lot of these sites. Yeah, your government knows everything about everyone in the world. Well, yeah, that's because we listen in on everybody. And everybody. <laughs> but, but that's the GCHQ for you. Yes. They've been doing it for a long so time. I'll let you know, there's, um, there's an airbase near where I grew up. Um, uh-huh. It's where the Nimrod planes used to fly from. Okay. Uh, one of the biggest air bases in Scotland. Sure. And when when you go about on about, you know, these people have bought a silo and all that, so that's nothing compared to some of these military projects. Um Lossie Mouth and there's two air bases basically next to each other. But they mm -hmm. have whole underground hangars, let alone accommodation for people they have hangars for the planes and everything all underground they're enormous so and, and, and some of them have uh been closed down in the uk some of these giant underground bases and the closed british are down. very very good at giant underground bases you just need to look closed at the rocket gibraltar the reason why britain doesn't want to give up gibraltar is mm -hmm. is the base we've got there Mm -hmm. That's probably one of the few things that would survive Armageddon. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's the whole of the end. They've been digging out the inside of that mountain since um, Napoleonic times. Good lord! Kind of makes you wonder how that Kind of makes you wonder how that guy that uh, what is it called Sealand? The oh him uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but kind of makes you wonder how he's gonna fare. Not very well. He's in open water. 
Yeah, and he doesn't really have a big nuclear strike. A large wave is going to knock his little artificial platform over. The the seasteading people. Yeah. Which, believe me, I understand that you you want a you want a society that's free from laws. That makes sense, but not in this sense. So the the sea lord stuff—they're just too small. Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean there are bigger ones um, on the south coast of England. Weirdly. They were built similar sort of time, but they're a lot larger. Mm-hmm. And there's a, people have some made nice houses out of those, uh, but they're not. None of these places are self-sufficient. I mean no, that that silo not. they do mention. Oh, we've got hydroponics and blah blah blah. blah. But yeah, what's you're still dependent. Closed still systems. Dependent. Watch Snowpiercer and films like that. Oh yeah, I've got to say, Snowpiercer. Yes. You watch, yeah. You've you Snowpiercer was that was horrific. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah. Snowpiercer, good film, actually based on a comic, and I don't think the comic was called that. I think it was called uh, the comic was called The Train That Never Stops. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. Um. But it, it's investigate it, it. The whole premise of that story is what happens to closed systems. Yeah, you can't have a closed system. Nope. We think we can. We think we can create order out of chaos. We pretty much can't. And we've talked about those studies they did before, where they followed wildlife around and yanked food out of its mouth and wrote down everything it ate. And they did this for twenty years. Um, they just took a twenty square mile area and said, "We're going to put all the data we can find into this computer system, and we're going to have." this amazingly organized system and it's going to be just like life would be. And they found that when they fed all this data into the computer system, the computer could make no sense out of it because life is chaos, basically. Okay. Um, So to get back to the doomsday idiots (laughs) and and don't get me wrong, I, I prep too, but I live in a hurricane ridden place. You have to. Okay. Historically, our fascination with the end has flourished at moments of political insecurity and rapid technological change. In the late 19th century, there were all sorts of utopian novels, and each was coupled with a dystopian novel, Richard White, a historian at Stanford University, told me. Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, published in 1888, depicts a socialist paradise in the year 2000 and became a sensation, inspiring Bellamy clubs around the country. Conversely, Jack London, in 1908, published The Iron Heel, imagining an America under a fascist oligarchy in which nine-tenths of one percent hold 70% of the total wealth. Wow, that sounds like something worth reading, actually. At the time, Americans were marveling at engineering advances. Attendees at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago beheld new uses for electric light, but were also protesting low wages, poor working conditions, and corporate greed. It was very much like today, White said. It was a sense that the political system had spun out of control and was no longer able to deal with with society. There was a huge inequality in wealth, a stirring of working classes. Lifespans were getting shorter, and that's what we see happening to us here now. There was a feeling that America's advances had stopped and the whole thing was going to break. Business titans grew uncomfortable. In 1889, Andrew Carnegie, who was on his way to being the richest man in the world, worth more than $4 billion in today's dollars, wrote with concern about class tensions. He criticized the emergence of rigid castes living in mutual ignorance. Um, and 
uh, and mutual distrust. John D. Rockefeller. All these people are assholes, by the way. Of Standard Oil and America's first actual billionaire felt the Christian duty to give back. John D. Rockefeller, of course, is person who is most responsible for how your stop stop is most responsible for how your children are fucking educated today go ahead <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you know but sadly there are people that believe that that's and that's what i think is is most terrifying um you know i've been i i have been called um I have been called a, a racist and a xenophobe and, and a snowflake and a libtard. And I've been called fucking everything by the right and the left lately. And it's getting to the point where it's just goddamn disgusting. But th these people that are saying all this shit mm -hmm. probably believe the shit that you just read. And, and think that these people were were pillars of the community and they, they helped us so much. And, and, and they honestly believe that. They helped themselves. They helped themselves. They helped themselves. I, I mean, these people were indirectly responsible for the creation of the Federal Reserve. Um they were directly responsible for the creation of the educational system we have today. Um, where increasingly just knowing my great grandparents and my grandparents, I'm not as smart as they were. Okay. And I have people say to me all the time, you know, you're terrifyingly smart. No, I'm really not. I'm barely average. And had I lived when my great grandparents did, I'd have been a fucking dullard. Okay. This is how much, We've had a mental decline since then. And people like Rockefeller and the rest of these Carnegie assholes are, are directly responsible for that. And when right. I say these things, you can go and look at the documents they have written. Oh, my God. Pick up Tragedy and Hope. It's a tome. It hurts. And it's hard to read. But really sit down and read that. Because you will get a background on the history of this country and the history of the world like you never imagined. And it will make you physically ill. Go ahead. For anybody who wants a little bit of uh, insight, John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil, which mm -hmm. later on became abbreviated as SO or the fuel stations, gas stations called ESSO, E-S-S-O, and had the tiger for their, uh, their mascot later on became Exxon and who recently bought out Exxon or bought out mobile about 15, 20 years ago. So every time you buy fuel from Exxon or a mobile or, a, you know, a combination of the two, you are contributing to these assholes, yeah. which is another reason why I'm a pariah in my field, which might also <laughs> be the reason why I don't work as much as I probably should. It's hard to keep quiet, especially when you see something that's fucked up. Okay. So I just read the lies about Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller. Um, this whole thing I really disagree with. This, this, I, was this from Christian Science Monitor? Cause let me scroll down another 25 pages here. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is from the New Yorker magazine, which is, 
I, I would say, honest to God, I think this, a lot of it is exactly what you expect to see in your propaganda, which you should see in your propaganda, which is a little bit of truth mixed with a whole bunch of lies. I'm sorry. Am, am I wrong about the Rockefellers? No. No. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, he felt the Christian duty to give back. Yeah, he did, motherfucker. The novelty of being able to purchase anything one wants soon passes, he wrote in 1909, because people, what people seek cannot be bought with money. That's true. You, you can't buy slaves easily. Carnegie went on to fight illiteracy by creating nearly 3,000 public libraries. Rockefeller founded the University of Chicago. According to Joel Fleischman, the Order of the Foundation, a study of American philanthropy, both men dedicated themselves to changing the systems that produced those ills in the first place. Read Tragedy and Hope. That, that's all I have to say to you. Read Tragedy and Hope. And if you don't want to read it, right, go to YouTube. And there's a channel on YouTube called Tragedy and Hope. And it's just readings from the book Tragedy and Hope. Because it's 12,000 pages of dry fucking history. And occasionally you get to something that makes you go, what the fuck? Really worth your time. And if you can spend the time reading War and Peace, and a lot of people do, then then you can listen to this. Yeah, you can listen to it. You don't even have to read it. And and that's, I think that's increasingly the way we communicate. And I'm starting to see a lot of of publications that I trust going out and doing podcasts now of their news, which is excellent because it's a better way for everybody to know what's going on. Everybody's not going to read stuff. If they have a choice. Okay. During the Civil War, Armageddon became a matter for government policymakers. The Federal Civil Defense Administration, created by Harry Truman, uh, <clears throat> issued crisp instructions for surviving a nuclear strike, including jump in any handy ditch or gutter and never lose your head. In 1958, Dwight Eisenhower broke ground on Project Greek Island, a secret shelter in the mountains of West Virginia large enough for every member of Congress because those assholes should be saved in a national emergency. Uh-huh. Don't you think so? I think there's four members of Congress that maybe should be saved. So like yeah, Tom tr- McClintock, Tom yeah, McClintock, uh, Tom McClintock um, Thomas Massey, uh, arguments can be made for Rand Paul um, and maybe one or two more. And there, there's a couple on the Democratic side as well. I believe we should be saved, but not many. Uh, can you imagine that? Anyway. Um, I love Trey Gowdy. Yeah. <clears throat> Hidden beneath the Gruber Resort in White Sulphur Springs for more than 30 years, it maintained separate chambers and waiting for the House and the Senate. Congress now plans to shelter at undisclosed locations. That's because they don't want the torches and the pitchforks coming for them. There was also a top-secret plan to whisk away the Gettysburg Address from the Library of Congress and the Declaration of Independence from the National Archives. But in 1961, John F. Kennedy encouraged every citizen to help build fallout shelters, saying in a televised address, I know you would not want to do less. In 1976, tapping into the fear of inflation and the Arab oil embargo, a far-right publisher named Carl Saxton launched The Survivor, an influential newsletter that celebrated forgotten pioneer skills. Saxon claims to have coined the term survivalist. The growing literature on decline and self-protectionism included How to Prosper During the Coming Bad Years, a 1979 bestseller, which 
advised collecting gold in the form of South American Krogerans. The doom <laughs> Now, and, and I have to stop every time we get to something like this. Why the fuck would you collect gold? I, I mean, I, come on. If, if society as we know it is going to collapse, you can't fucking eat it. You can't kill something with it to eat that. Here you come. You can make bullets with it. Gold makes lead. real good bullets. But lead is the new gold. That's what you should be storing up on. Lead, you should be finding out how to make your own powder. You should be getting gear to reload and, if necessary, make your own ammunition. A small smelter is a good idea. Not that I've thought of these things. Uh, well, for people that don't think that it's all that doable, lead is very, very readily available. For people that don't know it, there's parking lots full of it. Powder is very, very easy to make. It's a little hairy if you don't know what you're doing, but with a little bit of practice and being careful, you can make your own black powder. And it's not hard to seal off the tube at one end and drill a hole in it and basically build a musket. I'm telling you, you don't want to fire a musket. I, I, I'm, I'm, I know. I'm just telling you right now, the average person is not as hardy as our great-grandparents. And you do not want to fire a musket. Yeah. I'm uh, just a lot, of, a lot of people end up with, you know, broken collarbones. Mm -hmm. Dislocated <laughs> shoulders, broken collarbones, broken ribs. You do not want to fire a musket. I'm people, sorry. People think that a 12-gauge shotgun or a 10-gauge at that kicks really hard. Try firing a 58 caliber musket. Yeah. Screw that. Yeah, How you... about a two gauge? <laughs> well, I mean, there was there was a thing I, I tagged Genie on where they were saying, just as the founders intended. Do you remember that thing, Genie? Yes, so, man. That stupid thing where it was saying that, that the guy had intruders break into his house, so he loaded up this musket. And he blew holes around his house. He blew holes through two of the, the people that were in his house. He broke the windshield of his neighbor's car. And then all he was left with was his rapier and his cannon. <laughs> 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 so he ran some of the scallywags through his rapier. Then he ran to the top of the stairs and put a cannon in his cannon and a cannonball in his cannon and lit it and went, tally-ho, boys, and blew out the wall of his house, just like the founders intended. Avast, ye mateys. Yeah, well, when it <laughs> comes to survivalism, forget, you know, for combat, for, forget pistols, rifles, anything with huge accuracy. Blunderbuss. Mm -hmm. Blunderbuss is the way to go. I, I gotta tell There's you, a I crowd attacking me. I'll kill them all in one shot. <laughs> 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 the dwarven shotgun. Yeah, I'm telling you, I, I really think these people are writing about something they know nothing about. Yeah. But yeah, let let if you are a real prepper, let is the new gold. Learn how to make all these things, and if you're really a masochist, you you could go with the cannon rapier and the the good old fashioned musket. Well, if you're really into you know, deep survivalism. It's not only lead, if you learn how to work aluminium. Because mm -hmm. it's the most common metal yeah. around. You can find it nearly everywhere. So if you can learn how to smelt your own little bits of aluminium, and it's not easy, it's easier done with electricity than it is with a traditional smelter. But yeah, yeah, 
<laughs> Jeannie says Mixler has a three-hour limit. We've got 13 yeah. minutes left. Well, <laughs> it's my fault. No, not really. But, I mean, so if Mixler shut off and we still kept talking, the only thing that would that would carry on on the podcast that goes up later, not on Mixler. No one would be able to hear the end of this is basically what I'm grasping. Um, Mixer will stop recording. Okay, but would we still be broadcast? No, I think it cuts off. It cuts you off the air and you have to restart the stream and then you gotta re-record both of your things together. And Okay. Um, so anyway, what I guess I'll do is put the rest of this here because I think we've picked apart this article and <laughs> there was, we've, we've really picked it apart. Um, I just want to say that I think there's a lot of um, bad information in this article. Um, but, they need to consult some country folks. That's what they need to do. They need to spend some money on consultations with some country folks. Well, why would they do that? And to learn okay. about how things can go wrong, they need to play Fallout, some of the Resident Evil games. Uh, <laughs> basically, the whole survival. Okay. Yeah, they don't, they don't want our input. We're the, we're the stupid, crazy, tinfoil hat-wearing assholes that, you know, <laughs> you know they, they want to get away from. Yeah. yeah. They're making laws so that we can't prep, but it's okay. They can just buy missiles. Close. <laughs> exactly. Now I'm going to prep regardless. And well, everybody's going to prep regardless because you know what shit happens. And if you saw what happened in New Orleans, you know you ain't going to get fucking help, especially yeah. if you're poor and white or poor and black. Fuck you is basically yeah. what the government tells you. Well, I mean, because they... now that now that we know about all these silos, well, I knew about it anyway. All you need to <laughs> stockpile if you want to survive is thermite. Oh. You burn your way into their silo, <laughs> take all our stuff. Because, <laughs> yeah, it can survive a nuclear strike. It will not survive thermite. Thermite. Yeah. All right. I didn't want to do this. Um, but uh, before I say this, I'm going to, before I read this, because this should actually be pretty quick, I'm going to say look up um, the term, uh, what is it, expansive rendition <laughs> um, before you take this as something that needs to be done or anything like that. Uh, Trump weighs return to CIA black sites report. The White House is preparing an executive order that would smooth the plan for the CIA to reopen black site detention facilities where it held and interrogated terrorism suspects before the Obama administration shuttered them, the New York Times reports. The three-page order would reportedly revoke a series of Obama administration executive orders that closed the sites, granted Red Cross access to all detainees, and limited interrogation techniques to those approved in the Army Field Manual. In its place, it would rescind, resurrect a 20, 2007 George W. Bush order that designated specific prisoner abuses as war crimes, protected interrogators from prosecution for the techniques not on the list, including, for example, extended sleep deprivation. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer told reporters during the Tuesday meeting that the draft is not a White House document. I'm not sure where it came from or where it originated, but it's not a White House document. The draft order would not immediately allow the CIA to resume the use of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques prohibited by the Army Field Manual. Congress later codified the Obama administration role in statute and that law remains in place. 
but the draft order says high-level officials should conduct reviews and offer recommendations to Trump. Among the targets of those reviews, whether the field manual should be changed and whether to reinitiate a program of interrogation of high-value alien terrorists to be operated in the United States by the CIA, um, outside the United States by the CIA, including any legislative proposals necessary to revive the program. Okay. Um, extraordinary rendition. I, he, he could sign these executive orders. It's still legal. Um, extraordinary rendition is something that started under H.W. Bush. Um, it continues to this day where we might not grab a suspect and place them somewhere to be detained and to be tortured for lack of a better term, because I read the CIA torture report, or at least the portions that were released last year. It was pretty fucking soul-sickening. Stuff you wouldn't want done to your enemy. Um, and we know that it doesn't really... It doesn't really reveal what you expect it to. Um, I think extraordinary rendition is going to continue. It's just, we're going to pay other countries to do it. He doesn't really need to do this. I don't think he's going to... I think somebody got a hold of seeing the document that was leaked, an old um, Bush document is what it looks like. Somebody got a hold of it and crossed out different terms and just went with it. And I don't know how reliable the story even is. I don't think he's going to do it because he doesn't need to. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just don't. He, why? Why would you? If you didn't need to do it, why would you do it? Any thoughts? Well, I, I noticed that, that when I asked about it in passing today, uh, Trump went, <laughs> oh, well, well Mattis is going to take care of it all. Yeah, I'll trust yeah, whatever and he's, he does. Yeah. And he's the one who said you get better results with a couple of beers and a cigar. You know, giving these guys a couple of beers and a cigar now putting the cigar out on these people than you do by torturing. Yeah, I mean, you the British, the British government use psychological stuff. They don't need any of the actual torture shit. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't work, and it just breaks people down and it makes them crazy. You know, I mean, obviously, if you have terrorists, having them crazy is probably better than having them sane, but then again, not really. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just don't believe he's going to do it because he doesn't need to. Well, to the United States Marines that I've talked to, mm -hmm. they look at General Mattis as mm -hmm. he is the second coming of yeah, he's like Jesus God. Christ. He's like God to the Yes, people. he is. They will follow. They uh, one of them. Uh, he's my uh, he's my coworker. He's my roommate on this uh, on this job. But right. he said uh, I'd follow that man butt naked into battle behind him. You know, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter where he'd want me to go or what he'd ask me to do. I would do it, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something to be said for a strong military leader. Um, and that's all I have to say about that. I don't think he's, I don't think Trump's going to do it. I think if somebody handed it to him, he maybe said, well, maybe let's just look at it. And then, you know, I, I don't know. I think Trump is stupid in a lot of ways with some of the things he does. He's passive aggressive. He still uses the Android device. I still see him tweet some weird shit on Twitter, which he really probably shouldn't be doing. Um, but I don't think he's that dumb. Does that make sense? To me, mm -hmm. the smacks of fake news, does that make sense? Yeah, because Obama was one of the, I mean, he was the first president that they actually allowed to keep 
his uh his social media device. You know, he had his own BlackBerry that was encrypted. They did it just for him. And I mean, yep. granted, this technology hasn't been around all that long, but still. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I, I, it's not that I like Trump. I don't. I, I, I would have been very happy with Vermin Supreme. I didn't get my pick. This is what I have. I just don't think he'd do it. Does anybody else think he would actually do this when we've already got people doing it for us for a fee? Yeah, and keeping no. our fucking name out of it. Does that make no. sense? Yeah, I don't I don't think they would. Jeannie? I, <laughs> I look, I don't like him. Um I, I I don't like him. I didn't vote for him. I didn't like her. Um I didn't vote for her. But this craziness that's going on is I really thought that after the election it would calm down. It fucking didn't. I really thought after the inauguration it would calm down. It fucking didn't. Um, and and people are just throwing away friendships over this stuff. And they have absolutely no clue what's really going to happen. None of us do. We can sit here and debate this shit to hell we'll have it. We don't know what he's going to do. Yep. You know, people like to think they would. Um, but calling your friends fucking morons and, and you know, all this you other know, is accomplishing nothing right. but, but destroying friendships. That's all it's doing. All um, I can say is stupid. Yeah, I don't think really stupid, but I also don't think that he's going to stop thinking like a billionaire. And he didn't get to be a billionaire by giving a fuck about me. Well, I mean, that's true, too. I'm just saying it. it it makes more sense for a rich person to pay somebody to do something distasteful and keep their name out. That's what I'm saying. Looking at this, that didn't read that way. But what do I know? Um, Everything's going to be roses. Hashtag alternate facts. <laughs> you know, it just, it is what it is. This is what we got. We got four years of it. You just suck it up and go, please don't drive us into, please don't ride us like the Titanic into an iceberg. Thank you. That, that's what most of us did with Obama. That's what I did with Obama. And well, uh, it's 59, so we've got like a minute. <laughs> I, I just want to say, to kind of quote Glenn A. Larson from Battlestar Galactica, this has all happened before, and it will all happen again. There's nothing new under the sun. Absolute nope. truth. So um, I guess that's it. Uh, once again, no ad this week and no, you know, no Muppets, um, but it's good. The show went quickly and we almost, I, everything I put on the outline I was going to talk about, we did. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Good, good show. I think so. Good show. I liked, I liked it. it. Night off. Good night. Night, Jeannie. Night, Jeremy. Good night, Jeannie. Night, Jan. Good night.